Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Heritage Foundation's Executive Vice President, Kim Holmes. Good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, to the Heritage Foundation, bright and early on a very hot summer's day. I think it's going to be as hot today as it was yesterday. We're very happy to have all of you here. I'd like to welcome all of you uh, to uh, to the Restoring Federalism, Giving Power Back to the States, a conference on that subject sponsored by the Heritage Foundation in coordination with the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. Today we are here to discuss a very important, very critical idea that was important to the very foundation of the Republic. That said, it's a concept that's virtually unrecognizable in our current system of government. Federalism is one of the safeguards meant to protect our very freedom from an overreaching government. Like the separation of powers and the checks and balances the framers of the Constitution created to ensure that no branch of government became too powerful, federalism is the separation of powers between the federal government and the states. In our system, the federal government was never supposed to have all the power or to make all of the decisions. The powers of the federal government were supposed to be limited, with most of the power actually residing in the states. The states were closer to the people, they were more responsive to their constituents, and they could govern according to the needs of their specific populations. And the clearest statement of the relationship of this relationship is found in the Tenth Amendment, and I will read it to you. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Now, federalism was turned on its head over the course of the 20th century. More and more regulations and laws from the federal government concentrated political rule in Washington. The waste, the dysfunction, the overreach, and the threat to liberty we have seen as a result are exactly what the framers were trying to avoid. And that's why the Heritage Foundation has been very encouraged by the Trump administration's pursuit of initiatives to re-empower the states. And these initiatives include deregulation, encouraging more state economic development opportunities, creating more health care choices, and competition at the state level. But of course, uh, even more can be done, and we're here today, today to discuss what can be done. We'll look at what opportunities exist for the administration, for Congress and the states to advance federalism. We'll look at federalism from three perspectives, from the executive branch, from Congress, and from the state and localities. 
To that end, uh, we, are, we have created three separate panels consisting of administration officials, members of Congress, and state officials. And we'll talk about the administration's take on what we can do to return to the genius of the Constitution where the states and their people are the largest holders of power in our republic. We'll hear from the Heritage Foundation's president, Kay Coles-James, to discuss these important concepts with White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. I'd like to thank the Heritage staff and our Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, as well as the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, who organized this event. I'd also like to recognize our guests that will be here through the course of the concert, a conference, who are very important to illuminating the importance of federalism. There are several members of the administration who will be with us. As I mentioned, White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, Andrew Wheeler, the Administrator of the EPA, Russ Vogt, Director of the White House Office of Management and Budget, and Doug Holscher, the White House Director of Intergovernmental Affairs. We're also delighted to welcome several members of Congress. Senator Mike Lee of Utah will be here, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington State, and Congressman Ron Bishop of Utah. And we have officials from three state governments with us today as well. Representative Ken Ivory of the Utah House of Representatives, Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich, and Senator uh, Eric Nesbitt, the Senate President Pro Tempore of the Michigan Senate. I'd like to thank all of them and all of you for being here today, to taking the time to come to this important event. I'd like to now turn things over to Hans von Spaskowski, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, who will moderate our first panel, which looks at uh, the issue of federalism and the state and local perspective. Thank you once again for all being here. Hans, it's over to you. Thanks, Kim. Uh, and, and by the way, for those of you who had to get through the heat to uh, come here today, now you know why uh, Washington was considered a hazardous duty post in the 1800s for, for foreign diplomats. Um, as you know, federalism is integral to the political organization of the United States, and that's almost unique among Western democracies. Here, the states are not political subdivisions of the federal government. They are independent sovereigns that share power over many issues with the federal government and have exclusive authority and power over other issues. Yet over the past 100 years, we have seen a constant, steady, and growing encroachment by the federal government over the authority of state governments. Starting with the ratification of the 17th Amendment in 1913, which took away the ability of state legislatures to have any uh, voice in what Congress does, and the explosive growth of the administrative state and the federal bureaucracy, we've seen a steady erosion in the ability of state governments to influence, control, or limit the federal government. So just to discuss this growing constitutional problem from a state perspective, we have three outstanding speakers. And I'm going to introduce all three of them and then let them uh, speak, because that's who you uh, have come to hear. Uh, to my left is Arizona Attorney General uh, Mark Bronovich. He has served as the 26th Attorney General of Arizona since 2015 and was just reelected for a second term in 2019. He is a former local, state, and federal prosecutor that includes having served as the Assistant 
United States Attorney for the District of Arizona, where he prosecuted public integrity crimes, as well as the crimes occurring in Indian Country. Uh, General Bronovich has also been a judge pro tem of Maricopa County Superior Court, a command staff judge advocate in the U.S. Army National Guard, the director for constitutional government at the Goldwater Institute, and the director of the Arizona Department of Gaming, a law enforcement agency that investigates illegal gambling activity, as well as working with tribal regulators to ensure the integrity of tribal gaming. Uh, he's been recognized by the National Federation of Independent Businesses as a champion of small business and was elected by his bipartisan colleagues to serve as the chairman of the Conference of Western Attorney Generals. Uh, we will then hear from Michigan State Senator uh, Ari Nesbitt. Uh, he comes from a six-generation farming family in West Michigan, is a graduate of Hillsdale College, where he earned a master's in international business and received the Distinguished Alumnus Award for his work as a conservative reformer. In 2010, he was elected to the Michigan House of Representatives, where he served three terms, including as the House Majority Leader and Chair of the House Committee on Energy and Technology. He also served as a member of Governor Rick Snyder's cabinet, managing an agency that generates nearly a billion dollars annually for public education. In 2018, Senator Nesbitt was elected to the State Senate where he serves as Senate President Pro Tem and chairs the Senate Committee on Regulatory Reform and the Licensing and Regulatory Affairs Appropriations Committee. Finally, we will hear from Utah State Representative Ken Ivory. Uh, Representative Ivory was elected to the Utah House of Representatives in 2010 and has just begun his third term in the House. He is the Federalism Chair of the American Legislative Exchange Council. He is a lawyer who practiced business law in Las Vegas, including serving as general counsel for a publicly traded Japanese company until moving back to Utah in 1999, where he established his own business in estate planning and mediation. That job should be no surprise since he is fluent in Japanese. He graduated from BYU with a degree in Japanese, taught English in Japan for three years, and Japanese at Provo High School, and was the general counsel for the Japanese Olympic team during the 2002 Winter Olympics. He's a graduate of California Western School of Law. In September of 2016, Representative Ivory was elected by delegates from all 50 states to serve as president of the first ever simulated convention of states in Williamsburg, Virginia. General Bronovich? Should I stand or sit? Up to you. Well, um, are you guys standing or sitting? We're taking the well, okay. Maybe I'll chew up all my time by debating that. No, um, I'll tell you what, I will stand just because I'm a, uh, as you heard, and thank you, Hans, for that introduction. I'm a, uh, most of my career has been spent as a prosecutor. And when you're a, a trial lawyer, you're used to kind of standing up and using your hands as you speak. So uh, I will do that. You also may have heard in that introduction that. It does seem like about every four years I change jobs. So if my mother were here, she would be like, why don't you find something you like and stick with it? Um, but I also, I, I do appreciate that introduction. It was a little long, and it did remind me of a quick anecdote, if I can uh, begin with. Um, I was fortunate enough to have known Justice Scalia, uh, you know, rest his soul. I've argued at the U.S. Supreme Court. And I was at an event a few years ago, and I had the opportunity to introduce Justice Scalia. And so we're talking, and I, I asked him, I said, what do you want me to say? How do you want me to introduce you? You've been on the Supreme Court. You have all these amazing dissents. You've written books. You publish articles. You're in the private sector, in the Court of Appeals. And he said, Mark, 
That's a bad Justice Scalia imitation, but you get it. He says, Mark, he goes, you ever heard the President of the United States announce before he comes on? And I said, yeah, why? And he goes, what do they say? All they do is they say, here he is, the President of the United States, right? He goes, why is that? He goes, because the, most import, the more important your job, the shorter the introduction. <laughs> so all you got to say is, here he is, Justice Scalia. But thank you for that lengthy introduction, Hans. I, I do appreciate that. Uh, um, it's kind of in the story of my life. I will tell you what, I, I was new to politics. As you heard, I was, I was a prosecutor, and, uh, but I'm a first-generation American, and I was always brought up with a real sense of how great this country is and how unique it is. And in fact, I'm sure many of you know that our written constitution is one of the shortest in, in the Western world, at just over 4,400 words. With the amendments, it's about 7,500 words. But it's such an amazing document. It's such an amazing document because what it was designed to do is not only create a system of checks and balances between the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch, but it was also designed to make sure the states served as a check on the federal government. I would remind all of you that the federal government didn't create the states. It was the states that created the federal government. And in documents throughout the Federalist Papers, including Federalist 45, James Madison wrote about the importance of the states. And in fact, argued that the federal government's powers were so limited, the states were where the power was at. And part of the reason why the, the Federalists and why the framers of our Constitution wanted that is because they understood there was more political accountability. Government could be more responsive to the people, um, and the states were where they expected that power to reside. But it wasn't just the framers of the Constitution. I mean, you know, people like Justice Brandeis, I didn't agree with a lot of his judicial opinions, but Justice Brandeis used to talk about the fact that the states were supposed to be the laboratories of democracy. And so as time has evolved here, what we've seen is this more and more of shift of power from the states to the federal government. So now every time there's an issue, it seems like everyone runs to the federal government and says, oh my goodness, you need to solve this issue, you need to solve this issue. And in return, what happens is the Leviathan gets bigger and bigger and bigger and less and less responsive. And then you end up with these administrative states and these administrative agencies. And I know there's folks from the EPA coming, and they might agree with me that you end up with agencies where you're, you're a landowner and you're begging the federal government to do something with your own property. I mean, so when I became AG, when I ran, I said one of the most important things we're doing is we're going to push back against federal overreach. And I actually created a unit in our office called the Federalism Unit. And that unit was designed to push back against federal overreach. And so we've been involved in litigation, for example, over the Obama era's um, ozone regulations. And I tell folks all the time, this is just one classic example of the way D.C. works. I, I grew up in Arizona. I love clean air. I want clean air. But when they reduced the parts per billion from 75 parts to 70 parts per billion, in states like Arizona, a majority of the counties are already not in compliance because ozone is naturally occurring as well. And so it created all sorts of problems for landowners in Arizona. But I'll tell you the big secret of that case, or one of the reasons why we wanted to push back, was because you know what region of the country was exempted from those ozone regulations? Southern California, where there's more pollution than anywhere. Um, so once again, as government gets bigger and bigger and unaccountable, if you're politically connected, there's one set of rules that apply to you, and there's one set of rules that apply to flyover America. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think so many people have become disenchanted with what's going on with the government on all levels. Um, but 
our arguments or our federalism argue, arguments don't stop there. Um, I was involved, and I actually wrote a chapter in last year's Cato Supreme Court review about Murphy versus NCAA, which is the case that dealt with the federal anti-gambling laws about sports gambling. You know, I tell folks all the time, I don't you know, promote, I was the gaming director, but I don't take a position on whether states should or shouldn't have gambling. I think there's arguments pro and con. But what I do take a position on is why are a bunch of people in Washington, D.C. telling Arizona whether or not they can allow gambling or sports gambling? Because this was an issue, once again, that was traditionally left to the states. The states, when it dealt with public health and safety, those issues were supposed to be left to the state because, once again, the states would be more responsive and the politicians more accountable. And just one quick antidote related to that gambling case. I used to point out that there was a case um, at the turn of the last century um, in early 1900s, Champion v. Ames, it dealt with whether Congress could pass a law prohibiting the transportation of South American lottery tickets from Louisiana across the United States in the U.S. mail. Now, today, I think all of us would agree, well, of course, that deals with the Commerce Clause, interstate commerce, the U.S. mail, they could do it. But it was a five-to-four decision. And part of the reason why it was a five-to-four decision was because the dissenters were worried about whether the federal government even had the power to do that. Now, you fast forward 100 years later, and now we have Supreme Court decisions that basically use the Commerce Clause to create carte blanche, where nothing apparently is off limits for Congress to regulate. So for me, part of this approach, is, especially as the Attorney General, is we are going to make sure we're pushing back against federal overreach in the courts, and at the same time, we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to promote or make sure we have judges that understand the role of a judge is not to make the law, but to enforce the law as it is, to call those proverbial balls and strikes. And so I will just close. I know we're going to have some Q&A, but Hans, thank you. Thank you for everything the Heritage Foundation does because they are on the front lines of making sure we promote the rule of law and making sure we do everything we can to leave this country a better place than we found it. And if I can add just one last thing, and I, I don't know time-wise, um, one of the things that I always point out is that um, you know the Constitution, they're just words on paper, but the, it's up to the judges. It's up to us to make sure that they mean something. You know, if you pull up the uh, Constitution of the Soviet Union, it guaranteed all sorts of rights. I mean, pull it up. It, the right to speech, the right to protest, but it meant nothing. Words on paper. You know, down in South America, Venezuela is one of the most prosperous countries in South America. And Hugo Chavez comes along, and they have all sorts of rights and laws that guaranteed all sorts of protections. But then he arbitrarily starts seizing property, arbitrarily starts imprisoning people. And now Venezuela is an economic basket case. And why is that? because the rule of law meant nothing. That you could have, whether it's apparatchiks or whether it's tyrants, whether it's dictators, when you have someone or a group of body that can arbitrarily pick and choose which laws apply to which people, that's when democracies, that's when republics crumble. And so our charge here is whether you agree with the policy or not, is to make sure that you don't have a central government or a group of judges um, arbitrarily picking and choose which rules and which laws will apply to this group or that group. And that's what our fight's all about. And I know that Heritage has been on the front line of that as well. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, uh, Hans. This is a loud microphone, so that's good. <laughs> no, thanks, everybody, for coming here, and thanks who's tuning in uh, on the Internet and being part of this. Uh, it is something that isn't brought up enough, I think, and I th is, um, uh, Mr. General was, was saying, uh, Heritage has been on the front line for a long time and battling. That was the whole foundation, I think, a lot of it in terms of the Heritage Foundation from, from years ago was actually taking on uh, the encroachment of the federal government on what should be left to the states or, or the people. 
And so uh, my name is Eric Nesbitt. It is Eric with an A, a little different spelling, but I was the middle of five kids. I uh, grew up on a dairy farm, all started with A's. And you realize why they had five kids growing up on a dairy farm. Labor was a lot cheaper that way. <laughs> but uh, my oldest brother was Andrew, then there was Aaron, and the, by the time mom got to me, it was either going to be Eric or Erica with an A. Kind of glad she went with Eric. Probably would have grown up a little tougher if it was Erica. And then there's April, and the youngest one, she got the best deal in the family. She's the angel. So uh-huh. well, she asked my grandma, she says, that angel isn't a very appropriate name for her, but no, it's good to, good to be here. I'm going to discuss really three different uh, real quick points. One is the real principles of federalism that's there, and I think uh, Mark did a really good job in terms of laying out those, those principles of federalism, the, the, the philosophy, to the Michigan story uh, on how a state that drove into the ditch during the 2000s, we were able to right-size it and drive it out of the ditch. Now we're trying to protect that comeback. And then three, really the charge of the federal government and what you know, how the Trump administration I think is doing a great job in terms of, of leading on this on this issue, and then more ways that uh, that uh, the legislature, the, the Congress, and and uh, the president can continue to lead on on this issue. So one, the separation of powers. I think the, the talk so much of the time, and you hear it in the front lines of the media, is always that horizontal separation of, of power. You know, that's what you were taught about in, in elementary school at, at an early age is the, the legislative, the executive, and, and, and the judicial. But what's not talked about as much is that vertical separation. And that's something where uh, you can go back through the history of the, the states and then of the, the sovereign, the, the individual. And what does that mean uh, for folks? And you see the liberals and the left wing that continues to really prevent that vertical separation. You see it from the administrative state over the last century in terms of that growth, that a lot of times, I mean, we were talking earlier, is that sometimes you feel as a state legislator that you're just managing federal monies and federal programs and where, where those are going with all the strings that come, uh, come, come attached. But there's a real power that the states are supposed to have in terms of, of overseeing what's in, within their borders. You see it in the EU tax harmonization, regulatory harmonization. You see with Brexit that they finally said, no, enough of this, of, of the rules from Brussels. We should have some decision-making authority back in our home uh, country. And I think that's something where you see uh, concerns with state after state. You look at the policies of, of New York or, or California and the jobs and, and flowing out of those states into lower tax states such as Florida or Texas, those states without an uh, income tax. And so you see that, that competition, Michigan, leads, uh, or in the United States, leads to a vibrancy that I don't think you have anywhere else in, in, in the world. To the Michigan story. So you're right, before the Great Recession in 08, 09, 10 happened, there was a one-state recession, Michigan. We had nearly double-digit unemployment as the rest of the nation had, 5%. Four and a half percent. We lost 800,000 manufacturing jobs in, in that lost, lost decade. Um, and we had one of the worst business taxes in the nation. Uh, it was at a death spiral is what I would call it. You know, higher taxes, you know, more regulation led to less growth, led to more people fleeing, which led to bigger deficits, which then led to higher taxes. And so Governor Granholm at the time kept pushing those, those kind of policies. And I always believe that capital is like electricity. It flows the path of least resistance. And that's something where a state 
legislative leaders, we need to understand that as we compete with other states in terms of jobs and employment and opportunity. And so when, the, when Michigan had a cold, then the rest of the nation got that cold, we got pneumonia. And so in 2010, after eight years of, of liberal democratic policies, that Michigan had 15% unemployment rate, huge debt budget deficits, huge regulations, and the people rebelled. Enough, enough. And Republicans would take over the, the governorship and the legislative branch. And over the last eight years, scrapped the old tax code, which was a tax on, the, the old tax was actually on gross receipts. It wasn't on income for businesses. It was on how much businesses actually sold. So you could lose $500,000 and still owe a check to the government. There were signs in Indiana on both the Illinois and Michigan border that said, come on in for lower taxes, lower housing costs. Those signs are just on Illinois now. Yeah. So this, this is, I think it's an aspect of federalism that's extremely important as we compete and as we're experiments you know, we experiment in, in terms of state, but Michigan scrapped that old tax code. We scrapped 2,300 rules and regulations. We, we uh, became a right-to-work state. Michigan became a right-to-work state. We banned project labor agreements. We did away with prevailing wage a few years ago. I mean, real reforms in an industrial Midwest state that has provided 700,000 new jobs. 4% unemployment rate, continued, you know, but, you know, continued growth in terms of uh, the economy. So now the charges, you look at the last two and a half years of the federal administration, you, they actually are providing waivers in terms of how, you know, how, how we spend money, waivers that Obama would never provide. But that's just temporary. This is a charge that how do you devolve that central planning here in here in D.C., and, you know, I, I know an idea from the 90s is always block granting. How do you block grant money for whether it's education or whether for transportation or infrastructure? But I think the larger charge is how do you prevent that money even going to D.C. so then those strings that come back to the states aren't attached. So that's really the charge that we all have. I think we've made a lot of progress so much of the time. We don't look at the progress that we've made and continue to fight with, but there's still a lot of work to do. So thank you for, for taking the charge and leading and looking forward to the questions. I am super grateful to be here. Uh, you walk into the Heritage Foundation and they say, Do you, are you here for federalism? And I say, yes, and I want fries with that. That's all you have to do. You just come here, you pick it up and go home. So it's incredible to be here. I, I thought about when I, when I was offered this opportunity, when they called me, and, and I thought, what could I share? I've been in the trenches for nearly 10 years now. I thought, what could I share with you from that experience? And the things that came to my mind, the first thing was the great Reagan quote, right? This is a wonderful time to be alive. We're lucky not to live in pale and timid times. We've been blessed with the opportunity to stand for something. And then the, the, the great statement from Justice Kennedy in his dissenting opinion in the NFIB decision. He said, the fragmentation of power produced by the structure of our government is central to liberty. And when we destroy it, we place liberty at peril. On the flight coming here, the, the, the two stewardesses, they asked me, the, excuse me, the flight attendants, asked me what, uh, what I'm coming for. I told them I'm going to be speaking to a group. I'm coming here to fix the government. 
I'm going to be here for two days. I'm going to fix the government. I'm going to go home, and you guys got to keep an eye on it while I'm gone, right? And they said, oh, my gosh, please tell them. Please tell them we've got to get, we need to have our voice back. They just, they had me in the back of the plane, right? In the little galley in the back of the plane. And they were just, they were just, just, just working on me. This is so critical. We've lost our voice. I wanted to share with you a couple of stories, uh, the essence of a couple of stories. I want to leave you with two very critical takeaways. Another plane story. I was speaking in Des Moines. I was speaking on some federalism issues. It was the week before our session started in 2017. I was sick, and I wanted to get home. I wanted to get ready for the session to start. And uh, I get on the plane, and, of course, in Des Moines, there's an absolute freezing rain. The runway's iced over, so we sit on the plane, we sit on the plane, we sit on the plane. Finally, when it takes off, I know I've got to connect through Minneapolis. And so I'm checking my watch. I'm like, great, I'm going to get stuck in Minneapolis, and I'm going to miss. I'm going to be there. I'm not, I'm not going to be there when our session starts. And as we get closer to Minneapolis, and I'm trying to figure out where's the gate and how am I going to get to my gate, I notice this huge giant of a man with a University of Utah football T-shirt on. I thought, well, he's going where I'm going. I'm just going to find him, and I'm going to draft behind him. And so I did. I got off the plane. I grabbed my bag, and I was just like, like he was the pulling guard. And then he's just cutting a wave through the people going through the airport. And I'm just running to keep up with him. We finally get to the gate just as they're closing the door. And they let us in. They sit us in the exit row together, and we sit down, and we do the who are you, who are you. Turns out he's the linebacker coach for the University of Utah. He was on a recruiting trip. But he had played football for BYU, and if you know anything about football in Utah, and it's just about football season, right? If you know anything about football in Utah, that's called the Holy War, right? BYU and University of Utah. And so he asked me, well, who are you and what do you, what do, you do? I said, well, I'm Ken Ivory. I'm in the Utah State uh, Legislature. And he says, well, what do you do? <laughs> and I think uh, if I tell him federalism, I may as well speak to him in Japanese, right? I said, well, let me put it this way. So this holy war, right? You get ready for the game, right? It's a whole different intensity. The practices are different. The media is different. The whole level of everything is different. You get close to game time on Saturday morning. The, the, the speech that you give is different. The food that you eat is different. The excitement is different. And you get the big, the big rah-rah speech, and you get ready to go out of the tunnel and onto the field, and the stands are absolutely packed, and you get on the 50-yard line, and the other team is there, and you buckle your chin strap, and you look down. And there are no lines on the field. He said, oh, yeah, that'd be a disaster. He said, yeah, that's what government is like right now. There are no lines on the field. My job is to paint lines on the field. There are no lines to tell the teams where to stand. I said, that's what we're working on. I described federalism to him, and he said, I get it. I get it. There's no lines on the field. Where do we stand? We can't defend a line that we can't define. And this is where we are in federalism today. Second story I'll tell you. We, uh, I'm going to share this with you. You've got to promise not to tell anybody, okay? You can't tell anybody. I had a nickname as a child, and it left serious emotional scars, okay? I'm going to share it with you. You can't tell anyone. The nickname, you ready for this, is Chunky. I hated it. I hate Chunky as a, as a young man, right? Chunky. And, and, and I just absolutely hated it. The scars are there. But there was one advantage to being chunky. I got to be at the very end of the tug-of-war. Right? So when they did the rope and the other people are in the mud, I'm sitting there in the back, no problem, right? Well, 
our government is like a tug of war. It was established that way. Madison said the two governments will control each other. Hamilton said a certain rivalship will always exist, that they'll prevent each other from crossing the line. It was supposed to be a tug of war, and it started out that way, and, and as was mentioned, I think either Eric or Mark mentioned, that both Hamilton and Madison said, this is no contest. Right? In, in Federals 28 and in Federals 46, they said, the states, this is no contest. The states will be able to prevent the federal government from overpassing the constitutional limits. And so you start out with a tug of war, one against 13. In fact, I think it was Hamilton, Madison, I can't remember, said you'd have one set of representatives competing against 13. It's no contest. And as you started out, the states knew they had to pull. They had to pull together and they had to pull always. They didn't have to pull hard because they had all the power. But they had to pull always. And one after one, as they started going along, one would start dropping off the rope. You know, maybe they forgot why we're pulling on the rope in the first place. And then as we got on a little bit, maybe one said, you know, it's really hard to pull on the rope. I don't think we're going to pull on the rope anymore. And as they got along a little farther, maybe one said, you know, that big guy over there, he's looking a little scary. I'm not going to pull on the rope anymore. And another one said, you know what, he's paying me. He's paying me not to pull on the rope. And one by one by one, the 13 that became 50 all dropped the rope, and now the rope is all over on the federal side. And so now what we talk about, we talk about can we get people in Washington to push on the rope? Maybe they can push the rope back. It doesn't work that way. We have to pull. Federalism is about pulling on the rope. It's not about giving power back from Washington. It's about pulling on the rope. And so that gets to my two, my two takeaways. Number one, we have to know. We can't do what we don't know. We have to repaint the lines on the field. We did a resolution in 2017 calling for a national summit on federalism and calling for a national federalism commission that we get together with the states, with Congress, with the administration to sit down and do the serious work of repainting the lines on the field because we can't defend what we cannot define. Rights we don't know are no better than rights we don't have, and then certainly rights we don't exercise are no better than rights we don't have. So number one, national conference on federalism from the White House, because they can act more quickly, a, uh, a, a national federalism commission. Second step then would be at the states. A few years ago, a governor from Utah, Governor Lovett, uh, created a conference of states to get the states together to relearn their powers and to understand together as a union of states how to move on this. The third thing would then be Congress. We had the Advisory Council on Intergovernmental Relations at one point, and uh, to have Congress rework on that Advisory Council focused on federalism and then funded so that we have a national initiative to work on repainting these lines. The second thing... Uh, any of you know what, what legislator training is like for state legislators? I can give it to you in 30 seconds, right? You get elected, you get elected to office, and you have a meeting. You sit down and they say, here's your parking pass, here's your keys, there's the microphone, there's where the bathrooms are, and just remember the lobbyists are no longer your friends when you're no longer in office. Congratulations, you're a state legislator. I mean, that's it. And across the nation, that's pretty much it. So, so to try to say to do federalism on things we don't know leads me to the second point. The second point is a continuing legislator education certification. There was uh, Megan, is it Rapinoe? Is that how you pronounce it? Rapinoe, the soccer, soccer star? She was on Meet the Press last week. Chuck Todd asked her, you know, Governor Inslee said, we think you could, uh, I'll appoint her to be the Secretary of State. And so Chuck Todd asked her about that. Do you think you could be the Secretary of State? And she said... I don't know if I'm qualified for that. And he made a statement. He said, there's no qualifications for office anymore. 
There's no qualifications for office. At the state level, James Madison said, we're the sure guardians of the people's liberty. And at the state and national level, we're in charge of life, liberty, and property, and there's no qualifications for office. I would submit that we take it upon ourselves to create a professional standard. We create a professional standard, a continuing legislator education, a standard, maybe even a certification, that we know what this is. We can't pull on the rope if we don't know the rope is even there. We can't defend lines that we don't know where they are. I'll just finish with this. The the full Ronald Reagan quote, he says, this is a wonderful time to be alive. We're lucky not to live in pale and timid times. We've been blessed with the opportunity to stand for something. For liberty and freedom and fairness, and these are things worth fighting for, worth devoting our lives to. So let us go forth with good cheer and stout hearts, happy warriors, out to seize back a country and a world of freedom. Thank you. All right, well, obviously we have time for questions. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative and ask the first one. Uh, but after that... Uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and if you'll wait until uh, one of our staff brings you the microphone, and if you wouldn't mind identifying yourself, and the most important thing is uh, uh, end with a question mark. <laughs> this is your chance to ask a question, uh, not not give a speech on the panel. Um, gentlemen, one, one of the uh, proposals that has been made to repair the fact that the states uh, lost power over the federal government when the 17th Amendment was passed, is a new constitutional amendment that would give the states, if three-fifths of them vote together, to override a federal law passed by Congress or a federal regulation uh, put out by a federal agency. Uh, what, What do you all think of that proposal? You know, I actually had the opportunity, as you mentioned, to, uh, be elected to preside over the first ever simulated convention of states that was held in Williamsburg, Virginia in, in 2016, and we discussed that very thing. We had delegates from all 50 states. We, we debated over two days what would put states back in the game, and in the, um, in the Shelby County versus Holder case, it said our nation was and is a union of states, equal in power, dignity, and authority, and that idea of getting together as a union we don't check the federal government individually. Mark's doing great things in Arizona. Eric's doing great things in Michigan. We're trying to do what we can in Utah. But it really is as a union of states. And so to get to that point where the very fact of, of gathering as states in a convention has power, it has checking power under, the, under Article 5 of the Constitution, and then, Hans, the, you know, to have that kind of power where anything that comes from Washington, we have a recognizable, understandable tool that we could get together and start working to decide. Now we're in the game. We're debating. We have the power to actually do something rather than just point fingers at Washington and say, those guys. I I would just say, you know, my first reaction to that is I'm always a little bit suspicious um, when when people start talking about that because I worry about, quite frankly, the complexity of that. It may seem simple on the surface level, but if you do have a a constitutional amendment that says that, do you then end up with a bigger administrative state where you get the executive branch creating executive orders or doing through federal agencies what they can't do through statutes? And, And then if the states get together and they want to overturn a law, 
everything's so complex now. Do they overturn the whole law? Can they overturn parts of the law? And so to me, I think it raises additional questions versus, well, is there another possible solution? And I've always been a big believer in why don't we have a balanced budget amendment, a constitutional balanced budget amendment? I mean, because what happens is, is we know these deficits and, and uh, are good long-term-wise are going to be very bad for this country. But what happens is, is when, you know, um, I was going to say that in Congress they spend like drunken sailors, but the reality is that's an insult to drunken sailors because um, they drunken sailors only spend their own money and then they have to go back to the ship. But uh, Congress just keeps spending money that's not even theirs. And so, you know, it, it, when you don't have any sort of fiscal accountability, you can keep doing more and more things maybe you shouldn't be doing. And then that's why the I would argue the federal government's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger because of that lack of accountability. Other thing, you know, I have become a huge believer since I've been elected in term limits. I think part of the problem is you get this permanent political class here in Washington, and all they worry about is getting reelected. And everything becomes more and more complex. The tax code, all these regulations, all these statutes, because then the K Street lobbyists, and no disrespect to any of them that are in here, but, uh, you know, the K Street lobbyists then make money because they navigate all those laws. They make sure that, you know, what they're clients want get put into the statutes or get them put in the regulations. And so I think there are other approaches, such as like term limits, getting rid of that political class or even going the constitutional amendment route requiring a balanced budget might be more effective tools than going that route. I think we're at a point in our nation that there, we have to take some extreme measures as we, as we go in, into this because the administrative state's growing so large, the federal government's growing so to become part of our lives, that I, I do think a lot of these ideas have to be considered and 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 looked at, and that's I mean you look at it in terms of the comp, as I go back to the competition among states, and you saw the squealing during the tax reform process, right? What you hear from, during the tax reform process is that all of a sudden these high tax states weren't going to get a tax credit anymore, right? It was an artificially built up by the federal government for these high-tax states to continue to increase their taxes. And instead, you had all these liberal commentators defending people making six-figure, seven-figure incomes. When was the last time you heard that? It wasn't about the middle class and, and the other folks that didn't have that as, as a factor. It actually struck at the core of these of the, of the large states, but you know these high tax states. So that's something where I think we've gone to a point now that we have to be open to a lot of these ideas. If, if I may, just one more question, and we'll go to the audience. Um, the states are really affected by uh, the regulations issued by federal agencies, and you know, we often refer that to now as the, the administrative state, the swamp in Washington, um, the fourth branch of government, which is uh, most of these agencies are not accountable to, to voters. Um, given the way those regulations can affect your states, things like the clean power rules and others, you know, there's been a lot of debate in Washington over whether or not the Supreme Court needs to uh, get rid of what's called the Chevron deference principle. Uh, that is, that they basically, in, instead of the court interpreting a regulation or a statute um, according to the Constitution and its limits, uh, they defer to the interpretation put out by a federal agency. Is, is that something that you all think should be ended, and does it really affect federalism in the states? Yes. 
Yeah, I, I do think um, Chevron um, should be overturned. It's, it's a our artificially judicially created doctrine. It goes back to the days when there was some thinking that somehow these agencies had some sort of unique knowledge and they knew better than the people or the people in the industry. And I think that especially the last quarter century has shown that's not necessarily the case. Um, instead, what's happened is a whole bureaucratic class has, has, has come up in D.C. where there's no accountability. Um, I Just as a quick aside, one of the things that we did in Arizona a few years ago is um, we did personnel reform to make it actually easier to hire and fire people and to hold employees accountable. And that's something that I've always been worried about with the federal government, that it's difficult. And so you have this permanent bureaucratic class in these agencies that even when there's a change in administration, you may have you know a new administration, they can't do anything about um, some of the key people within that agencies that are actively working to undermine um, initiatives and prerogatives. And so I think that uh, Chevron should be overturned by the courts. I do think it undermines um, a Republican form of government with not political Republican, but Republican representative government. And I, I do think the correlate, I mean, just quick, quick anecdote as to how much things have changed. I come from Arizona, was raised there. It's a really hot state. So it's like, I think it was 115 there yesterday. I know it's hot here with the humidity. There was a congressman from Arizona, right as I was leaving to come here, that was arguing that we need federal regulations uh, to deal or to help employer, employees deal with heat. They, we need to have regulations now dealing with work-related heat. And I thought to myself, Arizona's been a state for more than 100 years. I mean, heat's been around for a long time. I mean, this is, I think, getting to the planet, it's like, like why does Washington, D.C. feel the need to tell people how they can or how they should work when it's hot outside? I mean, really, it's just, but that's the kind of stuff that happens. So then what they do is they'll promulgate a rule or regulation. And the next thing you know, there's an added cost to a company or a business, or then the plaintiff's lawyers come in and they file some frivolous lawsuit because, uh, you know, on behalf of a class of employees, maybe they're out in the sun too long. And, and this is why we have all these extra and external costs and uh, doing business. And um, I, I could go on on this, but I'll, I'll stop there. Sorry. Okay. I, I just go back. What's the difference? Uh, between God and a federal judge. God doesn't think he's a federal judge. So I think that's something that you got to, I mean, the judicial branch has, you know, as we've talked about the administrative branch, but that's another challenge I think we've had is that you used to have a lot of federal, you go back to the 19th century, you had a lot of federal judges that were from state legislatures that had experience there. Now, hardly any do. Hardly any do. And I think that's a real challenge is that there's kind of just one core class in the judicial branch that's, that, that's happening, that has happened over the last century, I would say. And I think that's usurped a lot of the state power. I mean, you look at the redistricting case. I mean, I think the, federal, the, the, the Supreme Court decided rightly on that, that you know, this is a political question, not one for the judiciary. But you look at the reasoning and rationale from federal judge after federal judge, it's insane that the state legislators, even on the most fundamental core political decision making, that they felt that they knew better and they felt that they knew right and just. And, and so that's something where I think longer term, as you look at it, you need to get a better swath of who's actually in the judiciary. Can I add one thing to that, Hans? I don't know if you know, Eric, but... Um my wife is a federal judge, so I hope you weren't. <laughs> I assume that whole soliloquy didn't apply to her. So, uh. 
You know, I had, one of the good ones. I had in, in our staff, I asked them, what's the difference between an administrative rule and a law that comes out of D.C.? And they said, well, there's no difference. There's really no difference. So, well, what about Article One, Section 1 of the Constitution that says all legislative power is vested in a Congress comprised of a House and a Senate? Well, we really don't know the difference. Do we keep track of the, the regulations? Well, we can't, we can't count that high. Even as a state, we don't keep track of all the, the regulations because it's just so massive. But the impact is, is substantial. I mean, the answer to your question is yes, but I'll give you just a quick story. Darren Bushman is a commissioner in Paiute County, Utah. It's the smallest county in Utah. It's 1,400 people, and it's about the size of, of Delaware. I mean, it's huge, right? 1,400 people. Uh, someone got an idea, and, and about 80% of the trees in Paiute County are dead because of a federal rule that said, we don't want to cut any more trees. Now, the trees didn't realize they were supposed to stop growing. And, of course, the trees continue growing, and imagine sticking 100 straws in your Diet Coke. One is good. You put 100 straws in the Diet Coke, not so good. And these trees crowd each other out. They crowd each other out for water and for nutrients, and they die. And so their trees are dead all over Paiute County, in fact, all over the western United States. Someone in Paiute County said, I have a great idea. I've got a contract to provide wood chips into California. And so he goes to the Forest Service and says, can I get enough dead wood to create wood chips to fulfill this contract in California? He said, sure, we'll do that. He said, can I, will you make sure that I get a constant supply? Because if I, if I go do this, I'm going to need a constant supply. Absolutely, I'll have a constant supply. Goes to the same Department of Agriculture the, the, and gets a small business loan from the USDA and borrows $3 million to build the equipment to do the wood chipping. So he's got a loan from the Department of Agriculture. He's got a contract from the Department of Agriculture and the Forest Service to take dead trees, turn them into wood chips, and sell them into California. Employs 14 people in uh, Paiute County, which is one of the ma major employers in Paiute County, and now they're off and rolling. It's a huge economic boom to Paiute County, and you know the end of the story. Two years into it, the bureaucrats from the Forest Service say, no more wood chips for you. And so he defaults on the SBA loan and fires all of the people, and the, the forest continues to, to be left to burn. Commissioner Bushman and his sheriff, uh, Sheriff Gleave, they go in and say, okay, can we at least take out some of the dead wood before you burn it? If you're going to do a pres prescribed burn, can we take out some of the wood that we can use before you burn it? And they said, we can't do that. You'd have to have an environmental impact statement. It will take years. It'll be litigated, so we just need to burn it. And so those are the kinds of things we deal with on these, these regulatory, both the rules and then the implementation of the rules. And so to take a layer of that out uh, and then really defer to the states with, with standards and allow the states to meet a standard but not impose the standard, I think that's really the direction we need to go. All right, finally to the audience. Yes, ma'am, right there. If you wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. Don't know what happened. The ACA was an unprecedented usurpation of the authority of each state's private uh, Department of Insurance over the regulatory authority of a private insurance market. We all know that. Every state knows that they had the full authority over their private market before the ACA. But I haven't seen states stand up and say, we want that authority back. You ruined our private market. What can states do? You guys are the policymakers. I, I will just say that um, I, I've been involved. I'm part of the coalition that's challenging the constitutionality of the ACA. And I always tell folks that, once again, if you believe 
in the importance of our founding documents. Um, it's important to make sure things are done in the right way um, and are consistent with the Constitution. Um, you know, once again, historically, issues like public health and safety are supposed to be left to the states. And there are a lot of things Washington, D.C. does. Um, I remember during the 2016 presidential election, there was a lot of talk about we're going to allow um, insurance to be sold across state lines. We're going to free up the states to create these individual insurance markets. I know that in Louisiana, Attorney Jeff Landry just worked to create legislation that would protect those with pre-existing conditions. So there are things the state can do, but it's ultimately up to the state policymakers to do them. And um, the problem with Washington right now is, is that uh, there's a lot of talk, but no action. And so everyone just keeps talking, 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 whether it's immigration, whether it's healthcare, whatever it is, because they all just want to fire up their own supporters and, you know, really, quite frankly, refuse to get anything done. So um, I do think the states are supposed to be those laboratories of democracy. And I do think policymakers need to step up and start coming up with some solutions to address the needs of their respective states. Yeah, your question is excellent. What can states do? And that really is the heart of the question on any federalism question that comes about, right? And so that goes back to rights we don't know or know better than rights we don't have. What powers do we have to address any issue where that line has been crossed? You know, Jefferson said it must be the states themselves um, erecting barriers. Well, actually, it was Hamilton erecting barriers at the constitutional line. Jefferson then talks about this constitutional line, and it must be the states that do that. Basically, we had five powers, right, originally. We had the Senate, and under the 17th Amendment, that power's gone. Hamilton and Madison mention in, in Federals 28 and, and 46 that We've got uh, the bully pulpit of governors. They say the uh, the frowns of the executive magistracy, they call it, right? Governor needs to frown a lot more and get out with the bully pulpit. They talk about legislative devices that are not to be despised, that we, we look at legislation where we simply just don't cooperate. We don't use the arms and organs of the state to, 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 uh, to implement federal policy. Certainly there's litigation, and we've got great attorneys general that take that route, and that's, that's a tool and then another critical tool is Article 5. And Article 5 is the ability where the states then can get together under the Constitution and, and have a look at how do we restore balance to these powers. But it really goes back to the point of, you know, this idea of a continuing legislator education program. If we don't really understand those powers and how we use them together, uh, the, the, the precursor to any of this starting out was this committees of correspondence where you had Samuel Adams and James Otis and these guys had these incredible committees that would work together and exert their powers together. The states really need to get to that point where we're working as a union. We understand clearly the powers. We understand clearly the lines. But yeah, those, are, those are the things available to us. I think Ken, Ken's exactly right, going back to the point of of – education of, of legislators because, I mean, we've served for... You know, it, was your training any different than what I described? Well, it was worse. Yeah. Because we actually, MSU actually, bring, Michigan State University with all their professors, you, you think the administrative state's bad. We actually had um, MSU professors for three and a half days uh, try to indoctrinate us on the importance of the administrative state and right. how actually... I, I remember one economist, me getting in a debate with one of the economists because the economist was saying how defined benefits plans were actually better than defined contribution plans for state government workers and actually had lower costs. And I couldn't let that go unchallenged. But, I mean, that, that, it's, that's why I say it was worse, because there was actually, I wish Hillsdale would have done something, or Heritage or something, you know, to provide that counterbalance. But there's a fear with legislators and those in the state. 
this is the federal rules. These are the federal. We can't disobey those. And there is. I mean, you talk to your colleagues, even in conservative Utah, right? Oh, we can't pass that. That goes against what these federal, you know, rules are. And so there is that education and understanding of our foundational principles and how do we stand up. If I may, just on this, so one of the things that we're doing in Utah with our Federalism Commission, we're working with Utah Valley University. They have an excellent constitutional study center. We're building a federalism index to, to measure objectively what are all the inputs on taxation, on spending, on regulations, on litigation, on a whole variety of different things. I mean, for example, one of the things I, I, I fantasize about being one of the, the, the graphics in the, uh, in the index is the number of rounds of ammunition in non-military federal agencies over time as an indicator of federalism with the police power. But we have to know where we are to know where we get to. And so, so those are some things that we're working on is to really understand deeply where we are. But I've talked to legislators all across the nation and there really is no standard. There's no professional standard. Hairdressers have continuing education. The flight attendants I was telling you about, they're like, oh my gosh, we have to have ongoing continuing education every, every two months. But there is no standard for that with, with legislators. And so that's a really critical thing that I, that I think we need a national effort to, to create that standard so that we know where we are and know the powers we have. All right. right over here on the right side. I'm going to try to cover the room, if I may. I'm Baker Spring with the Compact for America. Um, and so I wanted to tease out the options that would be available to state legislators to, to exploit more thoroughly um, the interstate compact authority under Article I of the Constitution. And we've, we're in the process of creating one with regard to Article V. Are interstate compacts a way to start to better organize an effort from the states to, to reclaim power? You're seeing that more and more. I mean, in the state house right now, there's legislation, at least in Michigan, to allow the compacts even on nursing so that you don't have to go. I, I know Arizona has done a lot of stuff on licensure, for example, and trying to uh, allow those you know states to be able to, you know, have an easy way for somebody from California or Illinois to come in and actually work in another state. And so that, that's one example. I think there's some troubling examples too, such as uh, the national popular vote effort is that, you know, they're trying to get states to actually give up their rights and their sovereignty and their authority to this collective effort. And we need to guard against those things. But that's, that's um, but, but I, I do think that those are, uh, I think we've seen some real efforts in terms of compacts to, you know, lessen some regulations and try to try to have states cooperate in that in that way. Yeah, one of my favorite statements on federalism is this uh, executive order by President Reagan. It was Executive Order 12612 on federalism, and and he, he talks about the distinction between federal issues and problems of national scope, and and simply issues that are common among the states. And clearly that's where the compact power comes in. I don't think we've used it nearly enough. And I don't think that, that from the federal side a problem comes up and, and there's an opportunity to engage and there's not that level of restraint. But on the state side, we're not pulling on that rope. We really aren't. And so to use that compact power where we say, yes, there's an issue, but it's an issue of common concern, not an issue of national scope, I think that's a very unused power to, to, to work in that direction. Well, and speaking of Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan um, used to say that uh, some folks say that the world is too complex for simple answers, and that's not true. 
Um, there's no easy answers, but there are simple answers, and that starts with doing the right thing. All the way over there on the left. Oh, thank you. Um, Charles Downs with the Madison Coalition. Um, my question is, have you heard of an effort endorsed by the RNC with the approval of the White House to curb the authority of federal regulations called the Regulation Freedom Amendment? And if you have, what do you think about it? Yeah, we actually in the, we did a resolution in our Federalism Commission where we met, we had every committee member come to the commission and bring their issues. We documented it in a, re, a resolution called, it was, a, it was a joint resolution to restore the divisions of governing responsibility between the national government and the states. One of the provisions we call on as a legislature is the RAINS Act, which is a little bit different, but, but to deal with that issue of regulations. It's a, it's a tremendous issue at the state level. I mean, when, when we have, uh, uh, by bureaucratic fiat, things can change from one day to the next, particularly where in our state 67% of our land is federally controlled. So we have 90% of our people live on 1% of the land in the state of Utah. Let that sink in for just a second. 90% of the people live on 1% of the land, and where we can put a road, how we can deal with emergency power, power lines, uh, electrical lines, fire issues. I mean, we, we know that 40% of our watershed in the Wasatch Front serving 2 million people is one spark away from being gone. We know this. We know this, and yet, because of the regulations and, and the bureaucracies, they're telling us our hands are tied to even protect health, safety, welfare on something as critical as, as a burning fire and the pollution that comes from that. So, yeah, I mean, regulatory reform and issues of, of, of reducing that fourth estate is, is absolutely critical to what we're doing, to what we need to do. Can I actually ask a follow-up on this? Because, look, one of the issues that I've heard a lot from folks out in the West is the fact that the federal government owns such huge portions of land in Arizona, Utah, Nevada. And we're not talking about national parks. I mean, we're talking about just federal land that's managed by the Bureau, Federal Bureau of Land Management. And is, what kind of an effort is there, or is there one, amongst the Western states to try to convince the federal government to, frankly, give these lands over to the state government so that they, they can, it would seem, most people would believe, the state governments, since they live there, are going to be able to run these lands better than bureaucrats in Washington. Well, I will tell you this. I'm not even looking, but I guarantee you Ken is salivating to answer, <laughs> to answer this question. I, I don't want him to pounce on me. I, I will say that uh, you're right. In, in, in Arizona, it's around 25%. A quarter of the land is um, owned by some form of government. And I'm a little old school that in the sense that when you can control people's propertyhood, that means you can control their livelihood. And when they control their livelihood, that means you can control the way they vote. Um, so it's a lot of power. And so we see this in two ways, not only the actual ownership of land, but then you get these secondary issues where you get stuff where, you know, when the waters of the United States, which is also litigation we were involved in, where uh, the EPA was creating rules that essentially would, you know, when you have a seasonal rainstorm somewhere in Arizona, all of a sudden now that lands under the jurisdiction of the EPA, which was never intended for, for in that way. So it's not only about, to, for me, the ownership of the land, it's about these regulations and the statutes that uh, exert more and more control over private property. Yeah, so, so great. Thank you for the question. We actually did an event here at Heritage. I think it was in January of 2016. We had our Speaker of the House. We had some of the top legal experts in the nation here and, and talked about that issue. And, and 
you've done a lot of work in, in following through on this. My, my favorite quote on the issue comes from George Sutherland. He's the only U.S. Supreme Court justice from Utah, and he says, man has three great rights, life, liberty, property. They're so bound together as to be a single right. If you give a man his life, but you take away his liberty, you take away all that makes life worth living. If you give him his liberty, but you take away his property, which is the fruit and the badge of his liberty, you still leave him a slave. 67% of our state, our property's been taken away. If you ask rural county commissioners what their number one export is, and this is Utah and throughout the West, their children. Their number one export is their children. These counties are dying. We have the exact same statehood terms. So in our enabling act, in our compact of statehood for the federal government to relinquish control of land, our terms are the same as Illinois. In fact, Michigan was 90% federally controlled for decades, from the 1820s to the 1860s, for decades. And, and you fought the fight and said you have no right to control the land. So we've taken on the effort of, of looking at having greater uh, local care and management, and we've run into some pretty serious opposition with some of the political uh, forces that are out there. What we've come to now, Hans, and we're really excited about this, is in 1976, this was the first time the federal government said, we're not going to keep the promise and, and treat you equally. We're, you don't get equal protection of law in Utah and Arizona. We're going to keep the land, but we've got a federal promise for you. It's great. It's just as good as sovereignty. We're going to give you a property tax replacement called payment in lieu of taxes. Because when they keep the land, we don't have, have taxes to fund education and local communities. 1976, we're going to give you a payment in lieu of taxes. You can imagine how that's worked out. We get a dollar an acre. We get about 35 million acres on 35, or 35 million dollars on about 35 million acres. Right? I mean, you guys would pay a dollar an acre for your property tax, right? I'm sure you would. This is what, and so, so our children in Utah, we're two and a half billion dollars below average in per pupil funding. Well, so I came up with an idea. I was sitting next to the, the most progressive member of our Senate in a natural resources committee, and I said, Jim, it was Jim DeBacchus, I said, Jim, I know that we're going to differ on whether or not the federal government should transfer the land, but while they hold the land, they should at least hold our children harmless, don't you think? And he says, I know, right? I said, you're punking me, aren't you? I mean, you're, you're, you're kidding. We ended up running a bill to determine the fair taxable value of the federal land so that we can then go to our federal partner and say, we just want you to keep the promise. It was unanimously co-sponsored by every Democrat, every Republican in the House, passed unanimously the House and Senate. We now have an artificial intelligence property appraisal technology that can value inventory and value every acre of federal land. And so we're working on that approach right now where just hold us harmless. If you're going to hold the land, as long as you hold the land, don't make our kids and our communities pay for it. And so that, that effort's moving forward right now. So you want to send the feds a really big bill? Well, we just, wanted, we just want them to keep the promise that they paid. Maybe they can quit funding uh, the study of alcoholic prostitutes in China and Sesame Street programs in Pakistan and teapot museums and shrimp treadmills and reprioritize, real things, by the way, sadly, and, uh, and reprioritize our kids and keep the promise they made. Yeah, right there. Um, Myron Ebel, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, just uh, Arizona is... Oh, uh, the four federal land agencies own over 38% of your state. Uh, but uh, my question is something that you've already uh, uh, mentioned, but I wonder if you could unpack it a little. It seems to me that the administrative state at the federal level, the, the biggest assault on federalism is that those administrative agencies actually control the state regulatory agencies. The, the governor and the legislature really can't, don't 
are not in control. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, if, and just to clarify, if I misspoke, I, I meant to say that about only about 27 or so percent of land is in private hands. I think I may have misspoke on that when, um, anyway, um, yeah, well, no, I think, I think that's, once again, it's probably a, a bigger discussion. Uh, part of this is, and I think it was Eric that mentioned the fact that, you know, very often, um, if you're a state, federal government gives you money, gives you grants, but there's strings attached, and they essentially, you become de facto agents. Uh, it's one of the arguments that we made, or was made in the uh, NCA versus Murphy case was the fact that the federal government is now in the business of commandeering, you know, state resources to basically do the um, bidding of the federal government. And if you read that case, it's really not just about federalism. Um, the court talks about this whole issue and once again reinforces the notion that uh, the federal government can't commandeer, you know, the states. And so you have that issue. You also have that issue of when they pass legislation, there's all these unfunded mandates that, you know, the states have to comply with. And so I obviously I think it's problematic. Um, and I do think that, uh, you know, what as the attorney general, a lot of these are policy discussions, but, you know, my role has been pushing back. And so that's why, um, whether it's the, you know, WOTUS rules, whether it's the um, the ozone rules, uh, whether it's the 111D rules, we have been involved in a series of lawsuits against the federal government, especially, um, uh, you know, some of the environmental agencies pushing back against these rules. And I, I guess the part that sometimes is distressing or disheartening to me is um, I think it was you know it was Ronald Reagan that said that there is no more permanent thing than a, a temporary government rule, and so what's happened is as this administrative state gets built, it just keeps layering, layering on top of each other, and even within the state agencies, there's sometimes that permanent bureaucratic class that is basically kind of the minor league team for the federal government's major league team, and um, I think it's problem problematic. But once again, you know I'm not a policymaker, I'm not the governor, and you know I I, I have a certain toolbox, um, and I think we've effectively use those tools and whether it's the bully pulpit, um, whether it's uh, through lit litigation or even trying to, um, you know, promote legislation even at the state level that would, you know, free up entrepreneurs in Arizona. It's something that, you know, I've been involved in, but uh, I do think it requires, you know, policymakers as well and, and executive, the executives in the states. Next time you get together with the attorney generals from around the, the, uh, the nation, can you tell our attorney general she's not the policymaker? That'd be nice. So, but... No, I mean, I, I can list too many things, to, you know, because you have constituents call you, they have an issue with their property. I, I have a, I'm from a big blueberry county. It's blue, you know, we're the number one blueberry producing county in the, in, in the nation. And, and somebody, I remember a farmer, this was eight years ago, and this is after I first got elected, farmer bought 120 acres of land. And blueberries, if you know, is a wetland crop. I don't know how many, you could probably tell me how many definitions the federal government has on wetlands. Right? Dozen. You know, USDA has a different one than the NRDC has a different one from the EPA has a different one, right? All these different. And, but on wetland regulation, there's two states that the federal government has given regulations to New Jersey and Michigan. And they hate it. They hate the fact. And so here they're trying to plant a crop, blueberries, right? Which is a wetland crop. <clears throat> and the, our Department of Environmental Quality is saying no, even though they had the authority vested from the federal government on, on wetlands, wouldn't let them plant it. Well, it's because the EPA would yank our license if we allow you to, to plant it. Well, where else would you grow it? So, I, I mean, there's just case after case. But one little thing, oil and gas production, right? Huge story in, in the United States over the last decade. 
Remember 15 years ago we were supposed to be an energy importer of natural gas? It was $12 a million BTU. Who has authority over the regulations of oil and gas development? Our states. And it was 10 years ago when Obama got elected and there was a Democratic House and Senate. What was their number one goal? Fra you know, FRAC Act, trying to regulate oil and gas production. We would not be an energy independent nation today if the federal government had the regulations on oil and gas drilling. Period, paragraph. And so the importance, that, that, that just, I think it just demonstrates the importance of trusting the states to make these decisions. Yeah, Vermont banned fracking. It's like Oklahoma banning ocean-going vessels. It just doesn't have an effect, right? Wait a minute, have you read the WOTUS Act, the Waters of the U.S.? They might have jurisdiction. They might have that jurisdiction now. All right, we're going we're gonna to we're gonna have to end it there. Uh, please give a round of applause to our great guest. And, and if you all will stay seated next, we're going to have uh, Kay Cole James, President of Heritage Foundation, and Mick Mulvaney, the Acting White House Chief of Staff. Good morning. Good Was that not an interesting panel? Well, I want to uh, thank all of you for being here today. This is such an important topic. And um, I think that um, the turnout that we have for people from the federal, state, and local level that are here. Uh, as I look through the day at the quality of the panels that we have, it's a very exciting time. Uh, it is my pleasure to uh, introduce uh, to some and present to others, because no introduction is necessary, uh, Mick Mulvaney. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Um, He's here today because he's going to discuss with us the administration's take on what we can do to restore federalism and rein in uh, an overarching, overreaching federal government. Uh, prior to his position at the White House uh, as the acting chief of staff, he was the director of Office of Management and Budget, and before the Trump administration, he was the congressman from the 5th District of South Carolina. A lifelong resident of the Carolinas, he left to attend Georgetown University and graduated with honors in an international economics, uh, commerce, and finance. 
After college, he received his law degree from UNC Chapel Hill and uh, on a full academic scholarship and completed his formal education at Harvard School of uh, Business. He's always been a busy man, which probably helped prepare him for his current position. In addition to opening his own law firm, he also ran the family real estate business and started a small home building company. While in Congress, he served on several committees, including the Budget Committee, the Financial Services Committee, and the Oversight Government Reform Committee. We are so delighted to have uh, him with us today. And so, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the Honorable Mick Mulvaney. Thank you for having me. Um, we are delighted to have you. Before I get into my questions, I just wondered if there were some things on your mind that you'd like to share with this yes, group. I, um, I did. You fact, have a little bit going on in your life right now. Part of the thing that uh, I always worry about when I do this is I don't I don't check my schedule till after I get dressed in the morning, um, <laughs> and I'm supposed to. The staff is supposed to tell me when I'm sitting on stage where people can see my socks. Um, <laughs> these are the tamest ones that I think I've got. These are actually um, Congressman Patrick McHenry socks. So if you see him, please tell him thank you for me. Um, no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's good to be back in this building. I was just talking to, uh, to Rick Dearborn, who's a friend of mine. We worked together in, in, the, in the West Wing in the first part of the administration. And this was the first building I came into after the election results were uh, announced in uh, November of 2010, right after the election, we had a group of men and women. It was the year that the Republicans took over the, the House, took back the House, um, and we had a, a dinner out here, and it was literally three or four days after the election. So it's one of those early, early memories uh, of, of being here. It's a fantastic facility. Welcome so, home. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, and I'm, good, I'm glad to be here to talk about federalism a little bit um, with a group of people who I know appreciate the value of it. Uh, and I'll start by saying this, and then we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Folks ask me, um, I, listen, I'm a, a, I've, I've been a member of the Republican Study Committee. Um, I'm a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. Um, surrounded myself with folks. Um, in fact, the running joke at OMB when we staffed it up that it was um, uh, OMB now under new management by the Heritage Foundation because um, <laughs> we hired all the Heritage people. So, you know, I surround myself with folks who are who are rooted in the concept of federalism all the time, which is great. I think part of the reason we've had such success and that I've had so much fun. Uh, but folks ask me all the time, what about the president? What about the president? Because the president, you know, isn't a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, wasn't in the Republican Study Committee, probably not a member of the Heritage Foundation. Um, what about the president? What is, what, what is the president's take on federalism? And what I tell them is it's, 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 the, it's the best kind um, because it's real. Um, and it's, it's born of real-world experience. Most of us in here, myself included, probably came to the concept that we, uh, of federalism, that we liked it, that it made sense, it was something we wanted to advocate for, something we believed in from an academic standpoint. I'm certain there's exceptions to that in this room, but from a general background, it's probably a lot of uh, intellectual and academic. The president has it from the real world. The president has it because he's had to go and pull a permit to build a building <laughs> and deal with bureaucracy and doesn't like that and knows why that impedes growth and impedes development, impedes creativity. And when you start to scratch at it and you realize, well, I have to get a permit from 
this, uh, this local bureaucracy and this state bureaucracy and this federal bureaucracy, and why do I have to do that? Why isn't one of them enough? And why is somebody in Washington, D.C. telling me what kind of building I can build in Atlantic City, New Jersey? That's the kind of, 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 of real, real world experience that makes his federalism so much fun because you take that and you marry it with the academic and the intellectual that we put together with a team, and it's a group that uh, that uh, really believes in the topic that we're talking about today, mm. which is why I'm glad to be here. So what do you want to talk about? Well, thank you. How about federalism? Yeah, I've heard of it. So <laughs> it seems to me that you are in a target-rich environment. I mean, given the size and scope and intrusiveness of the federal government, how do you prioritize? Where do you start? What do you see as the number one, two, or three goals? There's so much. Um, yeah, there is. I mean, uh, at the risk of saying everything, let me see if I can answer it this way. Um, the healthcare, the healthcare experience that we had, I think, provides a, a really good insight into how we do that, and and why it is a target-rich environment, and why it's so important to deal with the fact that it's a target-rich environment, because it seems like federalism is losing on so many levels. But I remember in the early days of the administration, I was OMB at the time, and we're sitting together in the, in the first couple of weeks and months working on the replacement ideas for Obamacare. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you know, we sit down with the president. At one point during the process, the whole team gets together, and we lay out for an hour all the different things that Obamacare does and did and how things were screwed up. You all may have seen the famous piece of paper that shows the decision-making process under Obamacare, what looks like a, uh, a maze. Exactly. And we show that to the president. He's like, this is crazy. Why don't we just let the states take care of this? Um, that was the president's natural sort of instinct. Why aren't they more involved with this? Um, that evolved, by the way, into sort of the um, Graham-Cassidy plan that gave a lot more control to the states and so forth. Um, but it's, it's, So it's not to, to answer your question, we didn't prioritize to sit down and say, okay, um, the first thing we're going to look at is, is federalism and health care. The way we prioritize is, okay, what was our campaign promise? Campaign promise mm -hmm. was the first thing we do, we'll look at uh, repeal and replace Obamacare, and then go, okay, how can federalism fix this? How can that provide the answers that we need on how to replace it? It's one of the reasons we're so disappointed. Um, and, and listen, I know the president takes a lot of criticisms, for his, uh, his criticism of John McCain. But let's not forget the fact that, but for one vote, Obamacare would, would not be here. Um, it is in our minds forever. Yeah, and that's, and that's, that's extraordinarily frustrating to, to Republicans, to conservatives, to anybody who believes in the free market, um, that you were that close to getting something done. Let's not also uh, lose track of the fact that Mr. McCain was not the only no vote on that. He was the most famous because everybody thought he was going to vote yes, and he voted no, but he was not the only one. I think uh, Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski also voted no uh, on that. Um, I may not be sure about Murkowski, but I think Collins did. Um, but, anyway, that, so, but we had a chance there to really win a battle, not just for individuals and for marketplaces, but for federalism and for better health care, um, and, and we missed it. Um, what are our prospects? Prospects are good. Prospects are and, and why do I say that? Um, name the Democrat candidate. There's what? There's 74 of them. Name the Democrat candidate for president who is on stage and say, you know what? Obamacare is great. I wouldn't change a thing. There's not a single one of them doing that. The closest that's doing that is Biden. And Biden's saying, well, take Obamacare and add a public option. Like that's just a little tiny fix to a, to a, to a problem, right? So I think all of the Democrats get that it doesn't work. So in that sense... In that sense, we've won the battle, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, there's a couple of fixed pieces, okay? Everyone believes that you should figure out a way to cover 
pre-existing conditions. Period. End of story. That debate is over. Number two, everybody, everybody, everybody agrees that Obamacare didn't work. Okay? It did not work. And so now it, it's going to be repealed either by us or by them. The question becomes, with what is it going to be replaced? Is it going to be replaced with a market-based system like we, like we would propose, or is it going to be replaced with Medicare for all and private insurance for none, which is what the Democrats are pushing? So I, I think the prospects are good because, in a sense, we've won the first battle, which is that when the federal government tried to fix health care, it failed miserably. So maybe the next decision is, okay, do we let the federal government try it again, having proved they can't do anything about it, or do we let maybe a more federalist, uh, devolved sort of approach try and come up with ideas and ways how to fix it and use that grand American experiment of going to the states and say, okay, if you believe in single-payer system and no private insurance, you can do that in your state. If you believe in a free market system, you do that in your state. And let's see, who, let's see what works better. Um, let's, let's actually use the crucible uh, of American federalism. And I think, uh, I think the needle is moving in our direction. You know, I think uh, health care, we certainly understand how that came up, how it's promised from the president, and he delivers on his promises, for which we are truly grateful. Um, but let's take another issue that is so important within the conservative movement and is so perfectly uh, aligned with our uh, views on federalism, education. Yeah. So what's going on in that area, and are we getting our arms wrapped around that? I was trying to, so I was making, I was just making notes on the back of an envelope as I came over here today. I was trying to figure out what it was that led to this discussion, but I, and I can't remember. So I give full full disclosure, I cannot remember why I was having this discussion with the president in the Oval Office, and it's since I've been chief of staff, so it's relatively uh, recent. I've been there about six months, um, and we are talking about education. And we're, again, sort of there's parallels to what was the discussion we had on healthcare and everything that was wrong with the education system and how much money we were spending on the education system at the federal level. And he, he threw his hands up and said, that's it. Next year's budget, just give all the money to the block grant to the states. Just do it. We're out of the business. We're out of the business. We're no good at it. We're out of the business. Um, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, and why is that so so sort of invigorating to a federalist? It's not just because it's the president of the United States, and he might actually have some say in, in what gets done. Um, but why? Why he 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 is the president of the United States, but he's still. And I know folks who, who don't know him find this difficult to believe. He's the same guy he was before he was elected president of the United States, and he's still a fairly ordinary person to the extent a, a billionaire can be an ordinary person. And the reason he came to this sort of this moment of throw your hands up in the air and say, you know, let's get out of this business, is that once you lay out for him the facts, it's fairly common sense to see that it doesn't work. And whatever we've been trying since the 1960s to have the federal government dictate education has actually had counterproductive results. Um, that the more we get involved, the worse that we do. We used to have the greatest K-12 education system in the world, um, and then a variety of things happened. My favorite, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not apocryphal, it's real. I read it someplace. It was when the NEA was founded in the 1960s. There was a famous interview on television with, a, with the president of the National Education Association, and they asked the person, they said, what is your plans for the next year? And the person laid out the priorities for the next year, and the interviewer said, well, you haven't talked much about the students. And the, and the president said, we'll worry about the students after they join the union. Um, so I and, remember that. Yeah, it's, that's Absolutely. not, that's not I, I'm fairly certain that's a real thing. Yeah, that's yeah. not one of those, those myths that come down um, through time. Um, and that this ordinary person, who's also a billionaire and also a, a president, has seen what happens when monopolies um, dominate an industry. 
quality goes down and price goes up, results go in the, go, go in the gutter. And that's what you've had with education. That's why it's so invigorating to see the president say, you know what, we've tried it. It didn't work. Let's try something else. It's an extraordinarily common sense approach to, uh, to government. And in several instances, is leading us to more federalism, which I think, again, is a good thing. Mm. You know, one of the... That would be the budget next year, was it'll be just massive. Russell vote, by the way, and those of you who know Russell, there's a few of you here. <laughs> we know I've and never, love Russell. I've never seen Russell so happy in his entire life. So he was just, it, 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 takes, it takes the budget for, you know, it's this many pages in this year's budget, down to like a page and a half in next year's budget, so it saves us about a week. You know, for those of us who are on the outside and, and, and cheerleading for the president and excited about the policy prescriptions that he is putting forward. Another part of our job is helping the American people understand what's happening. And I find it difficult, and I wondered if you had any advice for us on actually explaining federalism, because going forward, we're going to have to make our case to the American people. What would you say? We're close. Yes, you have to make that, but you're close. The, the, People, especially the younger folks, and there's a lot, I'm really impressed with the number of young people here, but a number of, I have three 19-year-olds, okay? I've got a, a hardcore conservative, one who doesn't care, and then a hardcore lefty, right? Um, but the th You just described my family. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I probably describe most families. Um, but what's, what's the one thing that young people um, are sort of arriving at a, at a fairly early age? What, one of the benefits, I don't think there's a lot, but one of the benefits of the politicization of the culture is that people play a lot more close attention to government than they do used to at a much earlier age than they used to. And I think there's a common theme. It's that most of them agree it doesn't work. Okay. Now they might say, well, it doesn't work and it favors the rich or it doesn't work and it favors, it, it punishes the rich or it doesn't work. And that's, it, it, but if you ask young people, especially what is the, give me the list of things that government writ large, not just the federal government does extraordinarily well. Um, it's a fairly short list. We can defend the nation. There's a couple of things we can do. Um, but that's not why they know about government. They know about government for the, how it doesn't work. So here you are, you've got an audience of people who say, okay, government doesn't work. So the, the key, I think, to the conservative and the federal approach is to then convince them, so why do you want more government as a solution? If you think government's no good at anything and you don't trust anybody, you don't like anybody, why are you asking for more government involvement in your health care? Why are you asking for more government involvement in your education? Why are you asking for more government involvement in even your, um, your environment? If we're not good at it, and it's the one thing even the hardcore left thinks, um, then why are you asking for more of it? Once we can bridge that gap and explain to people there is another way, there, there's an alternative to big government, um, I think they would be open-minded to it. Mm -hmm. uh, because what government they have right now, so many people are disappointed with. Um, so you know, one of the challenges that I have is everyone is interested in national politics, which you know lends itself to the federal government. And as I talk to conservatives around the country and remind them that the government that governs best is the government that's closest to the people, uh, I try to get them interested in. Uh, local school board elections, uh, serving on their county boards of supervisors, uh, running for their house of delegates, uh, and serving at the state level. So I try to encourage uh, conservatives not just to be involved at the federal level, because that is counterintuitive to what we believe about uh, how government works best. Uh, to switch it up a little bit. No, I want, can, I, can, can I say something oh, about that? No, no, that's no, right, because no, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, I don't know why we think that just because 
you represent 750,000 people, which is what a member of Congress represents, or several million, which is a senator. Why are you any better than the person who's on your city council? I've never understood that, especially when it comes to you. I'll never forget, I'm in the state legislature, I'm a state house member, I'm representing about 35,000 people. I live in the north central part of South Carolina, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, Lancaster County. It's fairly rural South Carolina, at least it was back then. And one day I'm in the state legislature and somebody knocks on my door and it's somebody from down at the coast who wants to come talk to me about a bill to change land use in South Carolina so that they can't build a dump um, in her town. Okay. And she comes in and she makes the pitch to me. And I'm like, um, ma'am, I've never been to that part of South Carolina. I'm not really sure. But uh, isn't this strikes me? Why, didn't your, what did your county council say on this? Did you talk to your county council about the permitting for this dump in the county? They said, oh, yeah. I said, what happened? They said, well, they ruled 7-0 seven, uh, seven in favor of doing it. And I'm like, well, don't you think that they would be better situated than I would be to make a decision about where the dump is going in your county? She goes, well, they're all, they're all just corrupt. They're all just corrupt. They're all on the take. Um, and you're my only hope. And I'm like, hey, have you ever met me before? And she goes, no. I'm like, how do you know I'm not at least twice as corrupt as those people are? And she had no response to that. So it's, it's, it always reminds me that we are not a court of appeals. We should not be. We should have our areas that we operate in. The state government should have its areas that it operates in. Local government should have its areas that it operates in. Just because you get a decision you don't like at your county council doesn't mean it's a state issue or a federal issue. It means if you don't like it, go out and work to change your representation at the local level. That's hard. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to go up to, to your, your, your move up the ladder until you get somebody to, to want to agree with you. But that's, that's one of the things you're right. You educate people at all levels about and tell you the number of times people wrote me at Congress with issues that were so, um, you know, they wanted a traffic light in front of their house. Fix the potholes. Exactly. Yep. And, and so if there's an education uh, role to be played out there, so to, to, to go back to basics, stuff that we used to learn generations ago in third grade about what's state, what's local, and what's federal. You know, one of the things that we are so pleased, there are many, but one of the things that we're so pleased about this president is is, is the focus that he has had on judges and the role that the courts play. Um, And historically, uh, you know, in the last few years, has not been very good in terms of taking power away from localities. What do you see as the role of the courts in helping to bring the balance back? Well, you'd like to think that the courts are not politicized, right? You would like to think that. Um, But let's admit it. I mean, come on. Um, They are. Um, And I don't know how you get back to where they are, where they are, disinterested third parties. There's a reason that when there's a decision comes down, it's pretty, you can, now there's certain, there's a lot of exceptions. Believe me, there are cases handed down every single day in this nation that y'all and I never see. Hundreds, if not thousands of decisions handed out every single day. But on the big ones, it really is unfortunate where you can go immediately to the result and, okay, I I pretty much can tell you which administration appointed the the panel that, that made that decision, that they are politicized. Um, and that's unfortunate. I don't know how you get back to that. So if you can't, then you try and figure out a way to get to some balance um, so that the Ninth Circuit is not hardcore left. Um, and we've had some success. And I think we've got uh, 12 of 27 judges, I think. I saw that number the other day um, on the Ninth Circuit Court. We've tried to get some balance and then hope that they can get – I'm sorry, is it what? Is it only six? I thought we had more than that. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um, anyway, we're moving 
closer to some sort of, of, of median mm -hmm. there um, and then hope that uh, the judges can work together to try and, and get back to what they do, which is they're supposed to interpret interpret the law. Now, I can't, and, and this is just my, my, one of my pet peeves, has nothing to do with federalism. Maybe it does. Um, I was trained as a lawyer. I don't remember national uh, injunctions issued by circuit, by district courts when I was a kid. Um, you could not have a, if there was a district court in the southern district, uh, in the western district of North Carolina where I used to practice, um, and the judge issued an injunction in a case, that injunction applied to the western district of North Carolina. And if that was appealed to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit affirmed that injunction, that injunction applied within the Fourth Circuit. And it wasn't until you got to the Supreme Court that they could issue injunction for the whole nation. I don't remember when we let the Western District, North Carolina, issue an injunction that covers Texas and California and Alaska. Um, so if that's federalism, um, you need to fix that, too. Absolutely. Um, Sorry, I got, I got sidetracked. Not, not at all. Not at all. Um, I'm watching the clock. Uh, just so you know, we have a hard stop in a very few minutes. Uh, what's the rest of your day look like? What's on your plate? I have no idea. No, today. <laughs> um, no, today's actually today is uh, today's today's a holiday because the president leaves um, at 4:30, <laughs> and I don't uh, I don't travel I don't travel uh, I travel internationally. When the president leaves to go overseas, the government moves with him. Um, so um, that, that's why we fill up the plane. That the chief of staff is there, the national security folks are there. The government moves with him when he travels internationally. So I go on almost all, if not all, the international trips. When he does these out and backs, he's going to North Carolina today. Um, I think it's for a political matter. I can't remember. It was, I think it was official the other day. I don't go. So today is the day I actually go and do all the work that I was supposed to do yesterday, but didn't because we had other stuff pop up. Uh, so it's a busy day, though. This is fun. I like doing this kind of stuff. Well, we like having you. Uh, thank you for being here with us today at the Heritage Foundation. Um, as I said, welcome home. Always a pleasure. And we are always, always uh open for you and for the president and want to encourage him, let him know that you were here today and that there were a room full of people who are so encouraged by what he's doing and uh, how he's making America great again. Thanks, and thanks for what you do. Thank you. Thank you all. I'm Tommy Binion with the Heritage Foundation. Um, thank you for being here. This event so far this morning has been fantastic. In just a minute, our panel on perspectives on federalism from the administration, from the present administration itself, will get started. We're very excited about this panel. I'm going to introduce them, and then they are going to join me on stage. This morning, joining us, we have Secretary David Bernhardt, who is the Secretary of the United States Department of Interior, where he has worked tirelessly on deregulation. Prior to this role, he served both as the Deputy Secretary and Solicitor for the Department and as a partner at the law firm Brownstein, Hyatt, Faber, and Schreck. He is an avid hunter and angler, man after my own heart, and recently served on the Board of Game and Inland Fisheries for the Commonwealth of Virginia. He has a BA from the University of Northern Colorado and a JD from George Washington University. Next on our panel, we have Administrator Andrew Wheeler, who serves as the Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Prior to this role, he served as the Deputy Administrator under Scott Pruitt. 
Before his service to the administration, he worked as a lawyer in private practice and chief counsel to the United States Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. He has an MBA from George, Watt, from George Mason and a JD from Washington University in St. Louis and a BA from Case Western Reserve University with majors in English and biology. He has spent his career fighting federal overreach in environmental regulation and is dedicated to restoring the administrative state to its proper size and scope. Next, we have Acting Director Russ Vogt of the Office of Management and Budget. Before this, he was the Deputy Director of OMB under Director Mick Mulvaney, who we just heard from. Um, before joining the administration, Russ served for seven years as the Vice President of Heritage Action, as the Executive Director of the Republican Study Committee, as the Policy Director for the House Republican Conference, and as a Legislative Assistant for Senator Phil Graham. He holds a JD from George Washington and a BA from Wheaton. Lastly, but not least, we have Doug Holscher, who serves as a Deputy Assistant to the President and Director of Intergovernment Affairs, where he serves as President Trump's primary liaison before the White House, uh, I'm sorry, between the White House and state and county and local governments, a role that is deeply involved in the issue of federalism. He previously served as the state of Iowa's Director of State Federal Relations. As the recipient of those relations, I can say he was very good at this job. Um, and as the executive director and, and an executive director in the Department of Homeland Security and in various roles for the Republican National Committee. He holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Iowa. Gentlemen, welcome. I'm going to start this morning with an apology of sorts. We here at the Heritage Foundation take a dim view of your powers. We agree with James Madison uh, when he wrote in Federalist 45, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. You are not as powerful as some think you are. Um, uh, that was a laugh line. I got one. Um, but I think that uh, on a serious note, this administration um, takes that same understanding uh, very seriously. Uh, we've been proud uh, to work alongside you as you put policies in place that reflect that construction of our government. You are to be commended for that fine work. Uh, with that, we're going to get started with opening statements, starting with you, Mr. Secretary. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Obviously, you can hear me. Uh, sometimes I can't even hear myself because I'm a little deaf, but certainly not the case here. Well, first, let me say that I am honored to serve a president who's been focused on collaborative conservation stewardship since day one and whose administration has been tremendously successful in recognizing uh, the power of American li liberty, uh, freedom, uh, intellectual um, uh, diversity, and entrepreneurial stewardship. And obviously within those values flaw falls um, a respect and role for the states and understanding of that. And if I had to s summarize our um, understanding of federalism and interior, I would use five words. The first word is respect, and I'll come back to that in a second. And the next four are be a good neighbor. And um, respect, I believe, starts at the top. And let me tell you something that's fascinating. I speak to a lot of governors off and on because at Interior, we manage about one in five acres of land in the United States. And that land covers primarily most of the western states in the country. And I can't tell you how many times I'm on the phone with the governor and a governor says, hey, I just talked to the president about X, Y, or Z. And the president himself is interacting with, with these governors 
um, on a very routine basis. And I guess Doug would really talk about that. But it, it is phenomenal. And it starts with him, and it goes to me, and it goes all the way down to our most uh, local field managers. Who I was in West Virginia yesterday, or I guess two days ago, and uh, the, the head of the Department of Natural Resources for West Virginia came up to me and said, hey, this refuge manager is the best person I've ever worked with. And we've tried to establish clearly, um, look, we need to be respectful of the legitimate roles of other governments, um, and we need to be a good neighbor. And how is that best reflected? Well, when I came into the Department of the Interior, um, I walked in and there was a matter related to the sage grouse in the western states. And the truth is that Secretary Salazar had begun a process to broker an agreement with seven states about uh, the sage grouse. And those, the governors worked with the states. Um, the governors worked with Secretary Salazar and came up with some plans. And those plans were ultimately rejected by the next secretary, Secretary Jewell and modified in a way that some of the states really opposed. So Secretary Zinke asked me to come in, look at those, and figure out what we're going to do about it. And I said, hey, what do you want me to accomplish in this exercise? And he said, I don't want the bird listed as an endangered or threatened species, but at the same time, I want to address the issues of the states. So I went to each of the seven states, and I said one simple question. Do you like the sage-grass plan you have? And if the state said yes, I said, Okay. And if they said no, I said, let's work on it. But let's work on it in a way that will not facilitate the listing of the bird down the road. And six states came forward with that, red states and blue states, each with specific changes that we worked to accompany. And when we rolled it out at the end of um, last year, all of those states lined up in support of the plan. And I think that is indication of how this administration is working with um, states, at least on interior managed property. Thank you, sir. Mr. Administrator, we'll move to you. Thank you. And first, let me thank Heritage for having this event today. I think it's a really important event to have. And, um, and what a great panel, too. I do say so myself. Um, so I became the acting administrator uh, just over a year ago on July 9th, and I set out for the agency um, that I wanted to focus on providing more certainty to the American public. And I defined certainty in three areas, certainty to states, local governments, and tribes, certainty on EPA programs, and certainty on how we communicate risk to the American public. Central to that and what I started with is certainty to the states, local governments, and tribes. And that's what we are trying to do across all of our programs. Um, last week, in our enforcement program, we issued a new enforcement um, policy on partnerships with the states. There are two um, specific elements that are in that new partnership with the states. The first is that we will have no surprises, that EPA will not inspect or take enforcement actions related to authorized state programs without first talking to the state. What the agency has done in the past is we delegate these programs to the states and then we go ahead and second-guess them all the time without telling them what we're doing. So going forward, we will not be taking inspections or enforcement actions without first talking to the states and letting them know what we're doing and why we're doing it ahead of time. The second is a state-first approach. Except for specific situations, EPA will defer to the authorized states for enforcement actions. So unless we think that you know, public health is, endang is endangered or, or there's some 
great environmental harm that's in danger where the state is just not acting or can't act, we will allow the states to move forward first, which is what we should be doing if we're delegating the programs to the states. On the other side of certainty, um, the Obama administration, under the Clean Air Act, let me back up a second, under the Clean Air Act, um, we have what's um, the states have to submit state implementation plans to EPA for approval. That's, you know, for the last 30 plus years, that's gone relatively smoothly. Um, sometimes EPA takes a little too long to issue them. Um, but what the Obama administration did was they stepped in and instead of approving the state implementation plans, they issued 50 federal implementation plans or FIPS. That is when they, um, the EPA disagrees with the state approach and decides that they're going to um, perform their own plan instead. They did it 50 times, which is 10 times the number of the three previous administrations combined. Outrageous statistic. What we have done um, since, we, since we came in in, in, in 2017, um, since March of 2017, we have on average turned one FIP into a SIP each month. In addition to all the FIPS that the Obama administration issued, they also um, did not process the, the SIPs that they had, the states had submitted. We inherited a backlog of 700 state implementation plans that were past the, the, um, the date for us to take action, 700. So far, we've gone back, we've taken action on 400 of those while still trying to keep up with the SIPs as they are submitted on an ongoing basis. So we are you know, trying to speed up how fast we process the SIPs, trying to take care of the Obama backlog, and also try to turn those FIPS back into SIPs that the Obama administration issued. Um, we're also, we've implemented lean management systems, also called, called the Toyota system across the agency. And we've seen a lot of progress on the way we um, manage our permitting process, for example. Um, our goal, the President's goal, is to have all federal permits within two years. Um, my predecessor, Administrator Pruitt, set a goal of six months for EPA permits. And from last June to this May, we've reduced the backlog of our permits by 51%. So we aren't quite to the six-month turnaround time, but we are processing the backlog that we inherited and trying to move forward to get to the point where we can issue permits within six months. Um, but I do want to, you know, the other side of the coin is that States always don't always do the appropriate thing either. And the federalism does not mean that one state can dictate national standards or decisions. And two examples. First is CAFE and what California is trying to do on the CAFE standards. Um, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to make sure I get it right, I'm going to quote the Louisiana AG Landry. He said, CAFE does not stand for California assumes federal empowerment. Um, we are moving forward with a 50-state solution on CAFE standards, which is what we should be doing. Um, that will be out um, later this summer, or, or maybe early fall, but it will be out this year, our new CAFE standards. And the other um, issue that I just wanted to mention, we're, we're also taking a look at under the Clean Water Act, Section 401. Section 401 allows states to veto projects. Um, it has been misused by some states in, in recent years. Um, it should not be a program, Section 401 should not be a program where they decide that they don't like a project for other reasons. It's supposed to be a water quality issue. And I want to point out one example, and that is the governor of New York. Um, governor Cuomo has vetoed several pipelines going through New York to try to deliver natural gas to New England. Um, personally, I think it is the worst environmental decision by elected official um, over the last year. 
what he's doing is he's saying he's vetoing these projects for, or has to say it's because of water issues, but what he's saying in his press releases is it's because of climate change. He doesn't want um, the fossil fuels to be used. What he's doing, though, is, is subjecting New England to further imports of Russian national gas. And Russia produces their, when the United States produces our, we produce our natural gas in a more environmentally conscious manner than anywhere else in the world. We have doubled our production of natural gas since 2000. And at the same time, we've reduced our methane emissions 16%. Russia is not trying to reduce their methane emissions, and they do not use environmentally sound practices in producing their natural gas. If you're concerned about what Governor Cuomo says he's concerned about on climate change, then um, you have to look at the, the carbon footprint of transporting natural gas from Russia to, to New England and the carbon footprint of that transportation. It's really a, a, a horrible environmental decision made in order to put out a press release saying he's doing something for the environment. Um, we can't allow states like California on CAFE or New York on vetoing these um, pipelines to continue um, at the expense of the other states in the country. So we will step in um, when we need to, um, and we will work with our state partners, and we are working with them on the FIPS to SIPS. We're working with them on the permit backlog, and we just, as I said, we just announced our new enforcement strategy next week on working with the states. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's an important perspective um, that uh, we have to be on the watch for overzealous states as well. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Acting Director, let's get your opening statement. Uh, well, thank you, Tommy. It's good to be back here. I feel like I'm coming home, so I have a warm place in my heart for Heritage and Heritage Action, so it's good to be here. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more on the spending side and why I think that that is, needs to be a part of the conversation on federalism. So when we talk about Washington having a spending problem, and it does, $22 trillion in debt, trillion dollars is uh, deficits as far as the eye can see, uh, we all know in this room that our revenues are at a historical average. Our spending is not. So we have a spending problem here in Washington, D.C., but it's a federalism problem because what happens is if the federal government is doing things uh, that are outside of what the Constitution would have us uh, be doing, that means that states are, in some respects, don't have the, 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 the need to figure out whether they should be doing something more effectively uh, with their knowledge of their voters, their constituents, uh, but also times it, it can lead to uh, poor incentives where Washington uses the hook of federal spending to change behaviors that the people of that state or locality would otherwise not be supportive of. So from our standpoint, the president has really led on spending. Uh, many people don't know this, but his budgets have had more spending reductions than any president's budget in history. Uh, we've included $2.7 trillion in spending reductions, uh, many of them on the basis of federalism. Uh, anything from eliminating community development block grants, uh, which just because it has the word block grant in it doesn't mean that that's federalism, right? I remember having many conversations within this building about kind of false federalism, where um, in its federalism may be tactically in design, and there are times where we're going to propose a block grant because it's better than the agencies in this town managing, but the very fact that you are taking money from taxpayers, recycling it through the federal government, and sending it back in the form of uh, a check, you've, you've messed up the whole federalist principle in doing that. So 
many of the proposals that we have in our budget are built around this concept of just not doing it anymore at the federal level, uh, not only because we can't afford it anymore, but because we think it's inconsistent with the constitutional system that the founders gave us. So, uh, again, we are doing everything we can on the spending front to uh, shine a light on this. Inevitably, we're going to need Congress uh, participation in this. Uh, thus far, they have not been willing to, to, to come alongside of us and participate in this conversation. But I tell you, every conversation I have with the president, he is bullish on spending and wants to he, – he is a former businessman, so he sees waste everywhere. And he also has this kind of sense of federalism that something that should just be done at the state level if it needs to be done at all. So that's the perspective we have at, at OMB on the budget side. And I, I would just mention uh, real briefly, OMB also is kind of air traffic control for regulations. So uh, we work to make sure that uh, if, if David has an interior rule that's really important that EPA's interests are, are flagged to make sure that we speak with one administration and then we can weigh the costs from a cost and benefit uh, perspective. And federalism is one of those principles that we're, we're constantly using to assess, uh, do we have discretion under the law? If we have discretion under the law, one of the things that we want to do is figure out how to push some of these decisions back to the states. And, and you could see that in, in a rule like our replacement to the Obama uh, Clean Power Plan. Remember, uh, Obama said he wanted to necessarily uh, increase electricity rates. The necessary was because it was designed to increase rates so that people would uh, make different choices as a result. We've come along, uh, these guys in particular, and re have replaced that uh, rule. So it, federalism is something that we uh, are constantly thinking about in the terms of, of uh, cutting spending, getting a control on it, getting our fiscal house in order, and then, of course, the design choices where we have discretion with regard to the regulatory efforts that the president has put forward. Thank you, sir. Your, your work in the administration has been one that we at Heritage um, have taken a lot of pride in because uh, the country's budget is in safer hands with you than it would be with anyone else. We're glad you feel home here, uh, and we hope you come back um, uh, very often. Doug, let's, let's get your opening statement. Great. Well, um, before this panel, Mick was out here talking about um, the president's view of, of federalism, and I think uh, the way he described it, it's the best kind of federalism because it's through real-life experience. And uh, I, I'm glad to be joined by these three uh, cabinet members who are great champions of federalism and uh, live it and breathe it and make it happen um, on a day-in, a day-out basis. I like uh, where Secretary Bernhardt started. At its core, it's about trust. Um, and I think when we came into office, we had a lot of trust building to do, um, not only based on the previous administration, but quite frankly, the previous couple of administrations, I would argue, and I was part of the Bush administration, um, and uh, I don't think we did federalism all that well on a variety of fronts. And so I think we had a relationship building and trust building exercise to do in many ways. And part of that was just meeting the state and local leaders at the table to have a conversation, to respect them enough to listen and learn. And so I want to share a few stats. President Trump um, has had 472 in-person interactions with our nation's governors in the first 30 months of his presidency. 
I work for former Governor Terry Branstead, now Ambassador Branstead, for six years, and um, he was the longest-serving governor in American history, and I think he would be the first to say that if all the presidents he worked with, um, none of them came close to that stat. We looked back and looked at Ronald Reagan's uh, interactions with governors, and President Trump has interacted with governors 63% more than President Reagan, who is probably the last great champion of federalism um, in the White House. And so um, it, it really starts from the top down, from the president, the cabinet members. Uh, we have some of our intergovernmental affairs team members in the audience today who are there blocking and tackling and working with our, our state and local leaders across the country. But it goes beyond even governors. It goes to local level. Uh, Mick talked about respecting the local level and uh, the federal government not being the court of appeals for every decision that's made in America. And I think uh, if you look at what we've done with county commissioners, I brought a, a prop here. Um, Governing Magazine uh, just, lot, just this month came out uh, with For Love of Country, How President Trump Became County's Best Friend and Biggest Ally. And that's uh, we had yesterday about 160 people from uh, the Northeast uh, County and local leaders. Uh, we had a cabinet member speak to them. We had other senior administration officials. Several of them went into the Oval Office to interact with the president. And so he's interacted with state and local leaders because he cares enough to, and he respects them. And um, you could have, you could double the size of the intergovernmental affairs operation across the federal government. But if that wasn't kind of the top line vision and mission, it wouldn't matter. So I think uh, we're really uh, proud that the president's setting that tone at the top. Um, I mentioned we like to learn from our state and local leaders because they have the, the creativity and solutions that we wouldn't come up with on our own. And often we try to defer, as the administrators say, whenever possible, let's let them uh, find the solution and the path forward um, and, and have state and local tailored solutions. And I love what the OMB team has done of getting the federal government out of the way. Um, on the deregulatory push that they've been the leader on, that's allowed uh, a level of oxygen at the state and local level um, to to lead and sometimes and do that better or get rid of the duplicated, duplicated layers that are out there in a, in a variety of, of uh, regulatory spaces. And so whether it's uh, HHS and the CMS team giving 20 uh, substance abuse disorder waivers to help states better tailor their programs to deal with the opioid epidemic, where the Obama administration did four. We've done 20 in two years, and they did four in eight years. Um, whether it's what uh, the EPA is doing on a variety of things that they mentioned, but also on the four four permits, the EPA is working with the Army Corps to um, try to empower states to take on that permitting authority um, instead of having the federal government do it. Um, also on the clean, uh, the clean power plan that the previous administration versus the affordable clean energy rule that we're proposing, that gives states a lot more flexibility um, to, to, to uh, set their own path forward. The sage grouse that the secretary talked about, um, even moving, uh, even moving uh, some of the bureaucracy out of Washington, I think, makes a difference. The Department of uh, Interior has done that, I think, uh, just recently. USDA has done that. FEMA has embedded uh, uh, folks throughout the country with state uh, leaders. Um, so we're, we're better partners, I think, at the end of the day as well. And, um, you know, hopefully in the conversation we can talk a little bit about what federalism is not, too. Um, and, and maybe uh, a couple of the threats to federalism, I think, have come up on this panel and the previous. Uh, but I'd love to talk more about that later, too. Doug, that, that is genuinely impressive. 472 in-person interactions 
with state governors. That is, uh, that's a thing to be proud of, but it's also, um, as, uh, as an American citizen, something that, that I'm, I'm excited to hear. Thank you for bringing that stat this morning. As you can see, this administration's record on federalism um, is, is pretty great. Um, we, we have a lot um, to, to talk about this morning on this panel. Um, I think that uh, any time that you are um, deregulating, as this administration does seemingly more than once a day, I think you are preserving federalism. Any time that you are shrinking the federal government, rolling back a regulation, um, getting the federal government or undoing a federal intervention, um, you are preserving federalism and making room for, if it's necessary, the states to take your place, or if it's not, you're making room for personal liberty. Um, and I think that that is, that is the most desirable outcome of federalism, is that at the end of that line comes increased liberty for, for us as individuals, for our families, and for businesses. Um, the stats on this administration's deregulation are, are, are staggering. Uh, at one point in the first year, it was 22 regulations had been eliminated for every one that had been put in place. Um, can, can, can each of you comment on what it's like to wake up in an administration where you're encouraged to deregulate rather than to regulate? Um, is that exciting to you? Is that, um, is that, is, is that a challenge? Uh, would you comment on that? Well, I would say in, in our case, um, the president, both as a candidate and um, immediately after he was elected, really set the complete direction. Um, he was very specific with the Department of the Interior about what regulations he wanted us to review, and he did that through a series of executive orders. And by doing that right out of the gate, what he allowed is at least in Interior, what we did is we implemented immediately secretarial orders that tracked those executive orders. And what that did is set the policy direction from day one and allowed us to drive at a pace that would be radically different than if we had waited until we received our assistant secretaries, which some of which we're still waiting on, um, uh, to begin. And that's exactly the approach the Bush administration took, was a wait approach. So that launched us um, several months in advance. The other thing is a number of items that he viewed as, as things that needed to be taken on, the Congressional Review Act process took care of, which freed up time to move to the next priority item. And that is one of the reasons um, that focus is one of the reasons Interior in the first and second year of the administration, I think was number two and three in the entire government for deregulation, and which means we were punching above our weight. I, I completely agree with the direction of the president's given us that you know to to deregulate the the two for one. Um, in in 2017, we took public comment on suggestions for regulations that we should take a second look at. We received, I believe, over 5,000 comments. We've been going through those to date. We have um, completed, I believe, it's as of last week, 41 deregulatory actions, and we have another 30 some. Um, on, you know, that are in the works that we will complete before the end of next year. Um, we've already saved American taxpayers just under $2 billion from the EPA regs alone. Um, that number will skyrocket when we complete the CAFE standard um, in, in within a couple months. Um, and we, we broke the comments that we received into 
tiers, tiers one, two, and three. And next year, we're going to continue deregulating. We're going to take a second look now at the tier two and tier three regulations. Um, and sometimes, I, I will say, um, we are moving forward with regulations. For example, we announced last fall we're going to move forward on a new regulation for heavy-duty trucks, on the NOx emissions from heavy-duty trucks. It's the right thing to do. It's not required under the under the law. It's not required by court order. But NOx emissions will be the largest contributor to non-attainment areas by 2025 from transportation sector. And heavy-duty trucks will be the largest segment for that. So we are moving forward with a new regulation to reduce NOx emissions from heavy-duty trucks, but at the same time, we're going back to take a look at all the other um, restrictions and regulations we've put on the heavy-duty trucks, and we will end up um, removing two or three old guidance documents and out-of-date regulations and modernizing it with the one regulation to reduce NOx emissions from the heavy-duty trucks. So it's it's not just um, deregulating everything, but it's taking a look and cleaning out some of the things. we've. The agency has had a history of putting guidance documents on top of guidance documents. And what we're trying to do now is to go back over, we're 40, our EPA is 49 years old this year, go back over 49 years worth of guidance documents and out-of-date regulations to see what we can take off the books to make things easier for the regulated community and the states. Uh, let me give you an update really on where we are, and I completely agree with this president. Um, he is so passionate about deregulatory efforts that um, he is constantly asking uh, OMB and OIRA for new ideas on what we can be doing, and he's asking the agency heads to be coming forward with, with new ideas specifically in their area. Um, since the beginning of the administration, we've had $33 billion in cost savings uh, from deregulatory efforts thus far. Uh, instead of the two-for-one goal the president gave us uh, last year, we hit 13-for-one. Uh, and uh, these guys mentioned our successes earlier in the administration as well. The, those cost savings don't really even get at kind of the ripple effects throughout the economy, uh, particularly in some of the, our, our health care deregulatory efforts. Uh, they don't include the big uh, CAFE rule that's coming down the pike. Uh, so we're doing really well on that front. Uh, this year, really just procedurally, is the year that we are trying to get the big rules done that the president ran on and have those finally um, submitted. And, uh, you know, we think they're all going to survive uh, litigation, but that takes time. Uh, and then, in, so we're, we're expecting the next year and a half to be that process, but we're also working on other additional structural changes that can help. Uh, these guys rein in, rein in regs, uh, pull in guidance documents. I would just agree with everything that Andrew said with regard to the, the, the impact of guidance. The previous administration would just put out a guidance document, not have it go through notice and comment, uh, and it acts as, as a regulation, uh, but it never went through the, the rule-making process with, with cost-benefit analysis. So it's a, it was a huge problem that we're slowly getting our – a handle on. I was able to send out a memo saying that all of those should be considered under the Congressional Review Act, uh, which is already statute. It just wasn't, we weren't uh, as, as complying as well as we could have. So that's something we sent out about a month ago. Uh, and we, we're really excited about some of the structural changes that I think uh, you'll be excited to read about in the news in the next uh, six months to a year. I was going to ask you about the fiscal impact of all this work later in the panel, but you answered it, $33 billion. I just want to pause to appreciate that. Uh, next time we do this, we'll have a big check from President Trump to the taxpayers for $33 billion. 
Doug? Well, I, I just want to continue that. If you take that to the family level, you know, the Council of Economic Advisors recently came out with an analysis. That's $3,100 per household per year when these rules are in full effect. That's real money for probably for everybody in this room. And I think that's really exciting to work for a president and a team that are making that progress to look out for the hardworking families of America and reduce the burden at the federal level and give state and local uh, governments a chance to, to, to lead in, in the places where it makes more sense. I wanted to highlight Interior and brag on them uh, just a little bit more. Um, they have either removed or amended 2,000 rules and policies related to fish and wildlife um, across the country to better align them to what um, state and local uh, regulations are. And so I, I think that's a great example of local and state officials are much better positioned to be um, driving that sort of policy and make sure that our federal policies aren't tripping uh, them up and getting in the way. And so I think there's real um, uh, impacts like that, whether it's in the, in the pocketbook or how people uh, behave recreationally and they're able to um, exercise their liberty across the country, I think uh, that's really exciting to see folks like Interior uh, making that kind of progress. You know, when, when President Trump was elected, he promised to drain the swamp. Um, the vested interest in Washington don't like federalism, and, and I'll tell you why. It's because it's a lot harder to lobby 50 accountable state governments than it is to lobby one unaccountable bureaucracy. It's just more efficient, it's cheaper, um, and, 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 and that swamp that's out there, the vested interests um, that have had power in this city for so long, that's the hornet's nest that you all have kicked. Um, and, 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 and so you've, that is a, a big challenge for you. On the other end of that, though, is when you take out a federal bureaucracy and you put in an accountable state government, you have increased, I mentioned you'd increase the level of personal liberty, you've also increased the level of accountability. Now, have there been challenges associated with this effort? This will be a major part of President Trump's legacy, and so it, it has been, I think, hard fought. Would you tell us about the challenges and how you're overcoming those? Well, I would say in our case, uh, most of the folks, 99.99% of the folks that work in Interior are fantastic folks. Um, what I would say is a tremendous advantage is um, as we have hired uh, people in, as in our political leadership, almost every one of them has substantial uh, experience uh, in state government in some capacity. For example, I served on the Virginia Board of Fish and Game. Um, and what does that mean? That means that we have a good understanding of the true competency of the states, for example, in wildlife management and a variety of other ways. And I think it allows us to bring um, that into the department um, to foster greater uh, collaboration. And, you know, the reality is that in all organizations, uh, private organizations, um, that are large, uh, change is always um, change is always difficult. And the reality is that this president was fundamentally elected to drive change, in my opinion. And our job as leaders is to drive that change. And part of that is uh, just simply working through, ensuring that people have an opportunity for input, um, collaboration. But then ultimately, we need to make decisions and move forward. Uh, to better serve America, and that's what we're doing. I'll actually take it one step um, further than your question. 
and it's it's not I don't just look at in, in terms of the swamp um, government officials, but my my overarching goal on our waters of the U.S. definition, for example, is to have very clear definition so that the property owners can stand on their property and tell for themselves whether or not they have a federal waterway on their property without having to hire an outside attorney or an outside consultant to figure it out for them. And, and I think you know that's clearly within what the, what the president wants us to do. He wants to return the power to the to the people, to the American public. Um, and I and I say that. And whenever I give a speech on on WOTUS, um, I point out that I, I used to be a consultant that people would hire to tell them whether or not they have a federal waterway. And I realize I'm putting my future self out of business there, but I think it's important. I think it's important to the American public, and it goes to providing the certainty to the American public. The, the rules that um, we operate under should not be so difficult that the average American can't understand what they can and cannot do. And I think the waters of the U.S. is a perfect example. A farmer should be able to tell whether or not they have water, federal water on their property. And i just give a quick example. When I was in private practice, I had a, a, a client who was a farmer. Um, he was accused of, of um, violating the, the, the wetlands regulations, and the inspector came out from the Army Corps um, and said, this, you know, this ditch is a federal waterway. And he's a pretty savvy farmer, and he said, I, I heard the EPA administrator say that under WOTUS, this is during the Obama administration, under WOTUS, that farm ditches would not be waterways. And the inspector's response was, I get to decide what is a waterway and what's not. I want to take that um, um, individual discretion away and have it with the owner of the property so that the owner of the property can tell um, without having to hire an attorney. I love the question uh, because it, it it gets at a uh, debate that we're having in the budget community between uh, non-defense discretionary spending and mandatory spending, and both of them are important to control. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, people don't think that the president's budget has mandatory spending. We have uh, more than any president's budget in history. But the reason we put this administration puts such a focus on uh, eliminating and reducing non-defense discretionary agency spending is because that is the agencies that are doing the regulations. That is the agencies that are getting in the way of the American people and their freedom of, of opportunity. Even with the best of stewardship from this administration, we're trying to get the federal government smaller and leaner and more efficient, and it will save money but it also people will have more freedom. And so one of the ways that we think that we're, we're following through in the president's commitment to drain the swamp is that to put a major spotlight on the problem of non-defense discretionary spending. Uh, so I, I go to the Hill and I talk well, with members and they say, well, isn't the problem all mandatory? Yes, mathematically it is the main driver of where we are debt and deficits in the future. But here and now, uh, we need to be making every opportunity we can to reduce discretionary spending for our budgetary reasons, but also from Federalist uh, perspective as well. Absolutely right. Thank you for bringing that up. Doug? Yeah, I want to just talk about some challenges on federalism um, that I'll highlight a few that were mentioned previously. Uh, the pipeline in uh, New York, I think, uh, what's that doing and that not going forward? 
in some states may be behaving badly and not, not following the intent of the law um, is that it's hurting uh, families in the Northeast. It's hurting uh, manufacturing in the Northeast. And those states in the Northeast don't have any regress. Uh, they don't have any, any way to change the policy of the neighboring states. So I think that in itself is a threat to, to federalism in some ways. I think you can make the same argument about some of the policies out of California and Washington State, uh, where uh, not letting products from certain states uh, be exported out or, if they're not produced in a certain way, be sold there. And so I think those are threats to federalism um, that are out there as well. I think... Um, there's a, a culture in this town of coercive federalism, I think, particularly from the Congress. Um, and so I think that itself is a, uh, a threat to, to federalism a, as well. I think, uh, as, as Russ mentioned, um, block granting, but block granting in name only is not true federalism. Um, and, and it's a false federalism. And so I think that's something. And I think one question for you, and then we'll take one or two from the audience. Um, what has been the response from the states? You mentioned the, the, the in-person interactions. Obviously, um, the president is being featured in some trade publications that, that tell this story. But uh, how have the governors received this? Are, are, are they as, as positive as this panel has been about this effort? You know, it's been really encouraging um, and, and, quite frankly, encouraging from across both parties. I think um, – Although they probably wouldn't say it publicly. Uh, we've had a few uh, Democratic governors tell us privately that uh, the customer service orientation of this administration, the access, is, is like nothing they've ever seen. Even the programming we do at the White House, we're bringing governors there all the time. We're bringing state and local officials there. We're the first administration to invite every county commissioner in America to come to the White House. In the first two years, over 2,000 of us of them took us up on that offer. We're starting that initiative again this year. Um, there's bipartisan praise from county commissioners across the country. So it's been uh, it's been uh, gratifying because uh, um, the president and the vice president and their team, um, uh, everybody at this uh, on this panel has participated in our programming in various ways and multiple multiple times. And so. To put that work and energy and effort into it, you uh, you want to hope that it's being received well and and the the feedback that we're getting, and I you know I, they they probably could give some examples of feedback that they've gotten by talking to governors or talking to a governor that just got off the phone with the president. Um, you know I think the responsiveness is is very much welcome, and not just the access, but what that means. It means we're listening, we're learning, and we're following up on their issues. We don't guarantee yes answers. But we do guarantee we're going to get them an answer, and that's a cultural change in, in Washington. A couple of uh, just time for a, a couple of questions for the audience. Yes, sir, the blue blazer. As her Capital Center, uh, you guys are just doing spectacular work, and and we're enormously grateful for that. But I have a tough question for you, which is someday there'll be somebody sitting at your desk with the absolute op. What are you doing now? Minimize. I will do. Mr. Secretary. Well, um, I, I think the reality is uh, administrations change, um, and if you're looking for durability, um, there are two ways to accomplish that, in my opinion. Uh, first is develop a good policy, um, and second. Um, uh, codify that policy, whether that's uh, by statute or by regulation. 
Um, and uh, if you do that, then there's a process that has to be gone, gone through. But I think if you start first with a policy that has uh, a strong degree of support and is well-grounded in the law, you're best off to begin with. I completely agree. I mean, that's, that was our approach for our affordable clean energy rule that replaced, um, replaced the CPP, was to ground it in the law, um, make sure that we're following the Clean Air Act, following the Supreme Court decisions, so that it will stand the test of time in the court system. And then the process changes we're doing at the agency, um, through implementing the lean management system. For example, this year, we're requiring all of our SESers as part of their performance evaluation system to participate in a lean management event. Um, so getting that ingrained within the, the agency itself, um, I don't see a new administration, regardless of party, ever coming in and saying, we're going to start slowing down how fast it takes EPA to process a permit. We want we don't, we don't want you to we don't want to do it in six months. We want to take three years. I, I don't see that happening. So getting that ingrained within the processes of the agency, I think, will also lead to long-term durability. Real quick, that's one of the reasons we want to shrink government so it's harder uh, to grow back. But I would also just say that as it pertains to some of the structural changes that we do via EO executive order. Um, history tells us that uh, even Democrat administrations tend not to overturn those executive orders. They may tweak them. Uh, they at times may repeal them. But in general, uh, there is a, a desire, even in Democrat administrations, to ensure that uh, OIRA has the ability uh, to be doing its job from a regulatory standpoint. So that's one of the things we, we view these as enduring structural changes that will stand the test of time. Okay, can I add one more answer? Because I, I just, you know, we, last year we moved forward with a regulation to require cost-benefit analysis across all of our programs. Um, and th this year we announced we're changing direction and instead of having one overarching regulation for EPA, we're actually going to go statute by statute and require cost-benefit analysis in each of our statutes for our regulatory decisions. We're starting with the Clean Air Act, and that will be, will be done by the end of the year. Um, I, I think that will institute um, incredible regulatory changes going forward by requiring the cost-benefit analysis. In the past, it's been done by executive order, but by actually putting it into the regulations for each act, I think it's going to make it even stronger. The only thing I would add, I think this, this uh, symposium is part of our efforts to nurture the federalism conversation. Um, that's been dormant for a while. And so I think uh, what we're trying to do here is help build relationships and connectivity to people who are going to champion this message, not only in the administration, but outside uh, with Congress and with state and local leaders. Um, so hopefully that has a lasting impact and helps make a cultural shift in the long term. Well, that's all the time that we have for this morning's panel. Um, it has been fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you for coming to Heritage. We hope you come back.
I'm good. I'm going to get this started for the last panel. Thank you very much. All right, gang. Um, we're going to we're going to get started just momentarily. I want to explain how this last panel is going to work. Um, in typical DC fashion, we've got a whole series of votes that are going on both in committee uh, on the House side and on the Senate floor. Uh, we're going to start. I think Congressman Bishop and Congresswoman uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers are here. Uh, Congresswoman, if you want to go ahead and join us, I know that you have to get back for votes. We're going to start with you, and we're going to ask Congressman Bishop to come up. So you're going to see kind of a little bit of a tag team action. Please feel free to take a seat here, and I'll introduce you in just a second. And the same with Congressman Bishop. I'm going to introduce both our members of Congress uh, for this next panel, which is basically uh, we've heard what state and local view, views are on federalism. We've had a chance to listen to Mick Mulvaney. Uh, we've also had uh, the chance to hear from uh, three cabinet members and the head of intergovernmental affairs at the White House talking about how they've been trying to implement the concepts of federalism and deregulation. So now we have a chance to ask uh, the third branch, or the, at least the second branch here today, um, what is it that they are doing and what is it they can do to continue to promote federalism? Um, I think they have the largest challenge. Uh, they are divided currently between a Republican Senate and a Democratic House in terms of leadership, uh, but we have two champions on stage with us right now. Let me take a quick, uh, a quick chance here to introduce both of our members of Congress. Um, first of all, Rob Bishop. Uh, he served two terms as state chairman of the Republican Party in Utah. He's a founder of the Western States Coalition, co-founder of the Tenth Amendment Task Force in the U.S. House of Representatives, and chairman of the Speaker's Task Force under Speaker Paul Ryan on intergovernmental affairs during the 115th Congress. He spent 28 years as a high school teacher in Utah, focusing on American history and government, currently serving in his ninth term as a member of the United States House of Representatives, and he's ranking member of the House Committee on Natural Resources. Congresswoman Kathy McMorris Rogers of Washington State is serving her eighth term representing the 5th District of Washington. She's a senior member of the Energy and Commerce Committee and a top Republican on the Subcommittee on Consumer Protection and Commerce. In addition to being the most senior Republican in the Washington State delegation, she's a leader in Congress and a champion for the conservative principles that promote individual liberty and limited government. Kathy served as the House Republican Conference Chair from 2012 to 2018, and during that time, she led on the USA Act, which we're hopeful to learn more about today, and the Republican agenda in the House to restore Congress's exclusive Article I lawmaking powers, which is a project she continues to lead on to this day. It's my honor to welcome both these members of Congress to stage. Please help me welcome them. Thank you. great for you guys to be here. I appreciate you coming. Uh, I know that we have some limited time. So if the audience will bear with us, we're, we're going to probably get right into it. Uh, and I think we'll start, first of all, with some opening statements. Uh, start with those two and then maybe a, a question or two for the congresswoman before she has to scoot and deal with her committee and votes. And then hopefully we'll ask Congressman Bishop to uh, stick around for some questions as well. So why don't we get started? Um, we're going to do opening statements, and if you would like to share with the audience your views on federalism, they'd love to hear it. Okay. Well, first of all, just thank you, Rick. I know we've been working on this for months, and I am thrilled that Heritage, Heritage is leading this discussion. So appreciate the leadership of Heritage. When you think about protecting our important freedoms, advocating for free markets, individual liberty, you're on the forefront of the debate. And this discussion around federalism is right at the heart of it. I, I feel like I should mention 
uh, a very special team uh, member of mine, Rachel Barkley, was uh, very instrumental in helping uh, organize this event today. And just keep her in your prayers. She is not with us today because she's in Philadelphia uh, in a rehab center recovering after major spinal surgery. She had a tumor in her spine. And so keep her in her prayer, your prayers. Um, she had, she felt the toes on her right foot for the first time this week. So that's uh, news. good news. Great news. She's a wonderful person. Yes, and she's... Spearheaded she, this for you. Yes, yeah, she's, a, she's a warrior here. Um, but as I, think about, as I think about the importance of Article I and, the, and just really the genius of our founders in this form of government and the powers and the authorities that were given in Article I to the legislative branch, I, I think that uh, we, we often celebrate America and, and, and this, um, this experiment in self-governance, right? And that it's, it's the government that puts people at the center of its government. And that is really seen most clearly in the fact that it's the people's representatives that are at, they're at the center of this government. Uh, oftentimes when tour groups come to D.C., I like to point out to them that even the capital itself is at the center of this city, of the capital city. It's up on the hill because our founders envisioned that the people through their representatives would always be at the center. We are the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Um, Clearly, this idea must be defended and constantly fought for, and we're seeing that firsthand right now. Um, I do want to just take a moment to recognize and celebrate some of the work that was done last Congress as you think about the regulatory rollback. It really was a historic rollback that took place the last Congress that was led by uh, the House and the Senate, as well as the Trump administration. We, the Congress rolled back more than a dozen bills, major rules that had been enacted in the previous administration. The administration was rolling back uh, 22 regulations for every one. Um, and this was, this was so important because under President Obama, we had seen a record number of major rules that had come out of the administration. So we were seeing more, every agency, every board, every commission was issuing rules and regulations and that had the force of law that had never been voted upon or approved by the elected representatives of the people. And so that was really important. Lifting the regulatory burden was a promise that was kept. It also was key in the economic growth and the, the, the booming economy that we have today, lifting that regulatory burden. But clearly, there's still a lot more work to be done. And uh, especially as you think, uh, you look at the issue of Congress, the House of Representatives in particular, ceding its power and decision-making to other branches. Uh, I don't think our, our founders ever imagined that the, the legislative branch, the House of Representatives, would be as weak as it is. Uh, and in order for uh, us to continue uh, to have a government of the people, it means that we, uh, we need to make sure that we're doing our roles. So when, when uh, the elected representatives become bystanders, then the people become marginalized. And there's such talk right now about the, the people feeling that, like their voices aren't being heard. This is one of the reasons is because of the, the elected representatives 
uh, not doing their job. So that's why reigning in rulemaking is important. That's why legislation like the USA Act, the Unauthorized Spending Accountability Act that I've been working on and have support from a number of my colleagues on is so important. Uh, the USA Act, it, there are hundreds of programs that are unauthorized today. There are uh, hundreds of billions of dollars that is basically on autopilot because Congress, we aren't doing our jobs to review, rethink, or eliminate these agencies and programs that have, that have uh, their authorization expired. And so the USA Act would, would, would make sure that that is happening. So Jake Tapper called these unauthorized programs zombie programs. And I think it's a really good description because they're basically those programs that just continue to exist even though the authorization has expired. Uh, what it does will restore Congress's power of the purse, and that would be a great solution. I also just wanted to highlight the importance of the states and the laboratories of democracy. Uh, and we often talk about that, but I wanted to give just two quick examples. Washington State, um, we spent three years getting a Medicaid waiver from the federal government. So it's, it took us three years to get permission from the federal government to implement the reforms within Medicaid that Washington State had identified that would help us meet the needs of the most vulnerable in Washington State. And to, and to implement some innovative approaches that would actually get better results at a lower cost. And it took us three years to get permission from the federal government. Don't you think we'd be better off if the states just had that authority to begin with? That the states had more flexibility to decide how best to structure those programs? Another example, transportation. So today in the United States of America, if there's federal dollars involved in a transportation project, it takes on average seven years to permit that project. Now just think about the time, the money that is spent in that seven years of permitting and studies and review and everything else. I know Elaine Chow is on a mission to get that down to one year or less. But it really is about, again, getting the decision-making back to the, the place that it is closest to the people. That's when we're going to have the best results, the best outcomes. So um, thank you for hosting us today, and I um, look forward to answering whatever questions I can. Thank Fantastic. you very much. Thank you, Congresswoman. I have to say on the permitting piece, um, I happened to be sitting in the Roosevelt Room when Secretary Chow was telling the President, we're going to get this down from seven years to one year. And the president's response was, wait, we can't do that in six months? I don't, I, I, I don't understand. So it is this downward pressure. And we heard from our earlier panel before you guys had a chance to come in. We had Secretary Barnhart, uh, Administrator Wheeler, um, Administrator of OMB Vote, and um, Doug Holscher from Intergovernmental in the White House, talking a lot about the tools that you all provided through CRA, how we took advantage of that, uh, as well as the 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 leadership by the president to talk about how he would like to see his administration run with regards to trying to provide what should be done at the state and local level at the state and local level. So that was yes. a fantastic point that they made. That's great. And I also want to say uh, it's great for me to be here with Rob Bishop because he's been, he's been tenacious 
on on this and proud of his leadership, leadership last Congress, and I was on that working group with you, and we're going to just keep at it, okay? <laughs> well, speaking okay. of, let's hear a little bit more about your leadership. Um, you certainly have been a leader on this issue for a long time, and we'd love to get your perspective. That's why we're not winning, right? <laughs> no, not at all. No. As we're talking about the concept of federalism, to me, it is the solution to this nation's problems, and I actually think it's the salvation of this nation's, nation's future. Uh, before Ms. Conway had the job she has right now, she used to do surveys. About 10 years ago, they did one in which they asked people's opinion on the word federalism without defining it. 40% of conservatives had a negative attitude towards federalism because they assumed it was the federal government. Same way with states' rights, which is, which is strange because states don't have rights. Anymore. People have rights. States don't. But states' rights has been so uh, identified with segregation and Jim Crow laws that both those terms are toxic. They don't mean things to people. And that's partially one of the problems that we have. I was surprised in the recent Democrat debates when they were castigating Joe Biden for talking about empowering local governments and states with the attitude that states make mistakes and local governments make mistakes, and people make mistakes. So it's the attitude of an all-powerful nanny government of socialism, of the central planning of the failed Soviet style to try and make sure that people are not allowed to make mistakes. And obviously we in Washington have the ability of making sure that those decisions are probably correct. Like one of the things I found out as we go through this is we all give lip service to federalism, but we don't really believe it. As soon as somebody finds a problem they want to solve, we're on to it. So we had, we had a great, he was a great conservative, uh, good guy, worked very hard on a lot of issues. He was, he was, he was sad that kids were fat. So his solution was to take the, Na the No Child Left Behind Act and as part of that mandate physical education as part of the No Child Left Behind Act. Now look, PE is good. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with forcing kids to go out there and actually do something. There is nothing wrong with physical education. It is wrong, though, for Congress to impose that upon states under any condition. So what we, what we, what we fail to do in Congress is think what we are doing. We see a problem. We want to have a legacy. We try and solve it. With, instead of asking ourselves, can we do it, we should be first asking ourselves, ought we to do it? So I went down on a lot of those issues during that time period, and I kept pleading the tenth. And what I realized was there were a lot of really liberal members of our Congress that don't believe in the Tenth Amendment. And there are a lot of conservative members of our Congress that simply ignore it. Look, I was, I was in Germany a while ago, and I met somebody who works for the German Foreign Service, and she was a preteen when the Berlin Wall fell down. So that she and her mother, for the first time, was able to go into West Berlin and go into a supermarket, and they were amazed at all the stuff they had there. She said she went into that market, and there was, there was, a, there was a shelf there with six different kinds of sugar. Because in East Germany, you had sugar or no sugar. Usually, it was the latter. But here was six different kinds of sugar. And the second thing that came into her mind with that perfect centralized planning concept was why do we need six different kinds of sugar? And what they have to realize is you need six different kinds of sugar to empower people to have freedom. The whole goal of federalism is to allow people to make choices for themselves. That's what freedom is. You have to have six different kinds of sugar for people to be free. You also have to have six different kinds of sugar to ensure there's going to be sugar at all. 
So that's the concept. That's the problem. We don't clearly get what it means to limit our ability simply because we want to solve a problem. And we don't get what it means to, to allow other levels of government to make decisions for themselves and, more importantly, to let the economy and let people grow because it's all about freedom. It's not about structures. This is not Republican, Democrat. It's not liberal or conservative. This is do people have choices they can make for themselves. That's what makes people free. Wow. Congressman, thank you very much. Excellent points. Well, why don't we get started with a couple of questions. I'm going to take the moderator's uh, privilege of starting first with a couple. Um, this one just came to mind as we were talking. We have a lot of candidates at last count. I think it's 725 that are running for president on the Democratic side. <laughs> and it seems like every one of them have a plan. Some people have more plans than others. And all of those plans reflect a new government program with a new amount of federal spending, with nothing in any plan talking about what the state's role is or what the local role is. And I think everybody in this audience is concerned. I know I'm concerned. I think one issue is, too, that how, how is this something that is now popular among uh, the voting public and especially the younger voting public? Because at the end of the day, we talk about freedom, um, but nothing in this world is free. And so when we talk about everything from forgiving student debt to Medicare for all to New Green Plan, there's a cost to it. And instead of entrusting a lot of these ideas and concepts to our state and localities, it seems that Congress, and now at least in the minds of many of these candidates, the next potential administration um, has designs on how to take further powers away from our citizenry and our states and our localities. How do we combat that? What's our response to that? What can we be doing? And how are you guys focused on that as members of Congress? Mm -hmm. Well, clearly, when you, have, when you have candidates running for president and they have a plan to solve everything from the federal government perspective, they're, they're basically promoting more federal government, a larger role for the federal government. And in many ways, that is a socialist approach to, to decision-making in a country. It is a, a top-down approach. And what we have to be doing is making the case for freedom and free markets and capitalism and, and celebrating that has been America through freedom and free markets that gives the individual the ability to take those ideas that they have to solve problems, to... Uh, uh, create new products, new services, or within a community, decide what is best for a community, how, how a community meets the needs. Yes, there are real, real challenges that we face. I think about, I think about um, well, here's an example from, from last year. In the city of Spokane, like many communities around the country, we have a growing homeless problem. More and more people that find themselves on the street. And it's a big debate going on in Spokane as to how do we, how do we, sh how do we help these people that are s s s uh, clearly in need. And the, the Hope House, which is a, uh, it's a homeless shelter for women, is packed out. I, I went and visited it, and that night it was completely packed out. They couldn't fill any more, fill any more women, and, and it was a first-come, first-serve. Because of tax reform, because we lifted the tax burden and gave 
more people the ability to keep those those dollars in their own pockets. Uh, the the Hope House got a million dollars contribution from a local company uh, and is expanding right now, right? They're they're building, and that's just one little example. But that is an example where if you help people to keep more of their own money and be able to step up and meet the needs in their community, it's going to be more effective. Those dollars are going to go farther than any program that the federal government is offering right now to help with homelessness. And that is repeated over and over and over. And what America has offered, you know, we have done more to lift people out of poverty, raise the standard of living than any other country in the world. And it's because it is free people being able to take their creative ideas, God-given creative ideas, to solve problems and, and to meet the needs in their families, in their communities. And it's much more effective uh, than anything the federal government can offer. And we, gotta, we, we must remind people of that, that. That's part of the genius of America. That's right. Yes. Congressman? Well, you know, the first federal candidate you vote for is the one who says he wants he or she wants to lose power um, so they can do less to you than when they started. Um, that's hard to get through. It's also a reason why this organization has to start the education process going forward. Look, I was talking to the head of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, who's from Lithuania, and she lived under communist Soviet domination. They remember the knock at the door at night and how scary it was and what it was like. But those Baltic states from which she came have been free for the last 25 years. The kids now don't know anything about that. They don't remember it. They don't know what it was like. And one of the things we have to go is still try to remind people how central planning of the Soviet style failed. It destroyed people and it hurt them. And we're not doing a good enough job of trying to remind people of what history has taught us, which is why all of you guys have that responsibility. That's your job. Make sure it sometimes happens. Now, we can do some other things. So the task force, the speaker's task force that we came up with, I mean, there are some things we identified clearly. The law says there has to be consultation with local governments. The law doesn't say what consultation actually is. We need to define it so that we make sure the federal government has to consult with local governments and state governments before they actually undertake any kind of a project. Uh, I would like to formalize the kind of uh, programs that we had in the past, which formalized an intergovernmental relationship between the federal government and states so they were meeting together frequently, they were talking together. Maybe formalize some of the ideas we've talked about of giving states the ability of frustrating rules and regulations by a two-thirds vote. Give them another tool in their quiver so they can't overturn the federal government, but they can stop it and make the federal government review something again. Those are the kinds of things that came out of that. So we have to have that kind of that there are things that we can still do to try and force the federal government to listen to and work with local governments at the same time. Local governments have got to pick up and we got to remind people that, hey, the idea of socialism didn't work before. It ain't going to work in the future. Right. Uh I'm getting the sign that I'm going to have to go. Um, I, 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 I was think I just piggybacking upon what Rob said. Uh, there's there's a lot of different aspects to this, but one of the things I appreciated about President Trump when he was running, he said he would support the Reins Act. I had never heard any other person running for president who said that they would support the Reins Act. The Reins Act was the legislation that would would ensure that once a rule is written by an agency, it would actually have to come back to Congress 
for approval to ensure that it met the intent of what the agency should be doing, right? So there's an example where somebody was actually willing to give up power in the executive branch and because they believed in the, the role of the House and the Senate in deciding what the law is in this country. So that was President Trump. You know, but, but through the years, so that's the executive branch, and that's very unusual. The judicial branch has taken power away from the elected representatives. We often refer to the Chevron decision. Um, Chevron decision, and there's the other ones too, but the Chevron decision was a, de a Supreme Court decision that said when there is a dispute between what the rule is that the agency has written and what Congress wrote in the law, when there's a dispute, that the deference would actually go to the agency, not come back to what the elected representatives of the people had said. So uh, it does take electing people in the White House, in the House, in the Senate, that, that recognize what the power structure is supposed to be and ultimately recognize and respect that the best decisions are made by the people. The goal is to get the decision-making at the local level, empowering the citizen to make the best decisions and giving them choices. Uh, and that's why these elections are important. These kind of discussions are so important. So they thank you uh, for having me today. I'm sorry I can't stay. No worries. Thank um, you, Congresswoman. We're we'll keep it going. You, okay. We're going to let you scoot Good. out. But okay. follow-up question for Congressman Bishop. Thank you very much. Thank you, Congressman Bishop. Um, and I programming note, Senator Lee had a conflict. I think we're uh, waiting on Senator Johnson, who's going to hopefully show up in the next couple of minutes. I have a question, and it's specifically on Congress, uh, Congressman Bishop. Um, you said something I thought was really important, which is you want to vote for the, the federal official that doesn't want the power, that would prefer to give it back. There's, for those of you, and there's a lot of folks that I see in the room today that have been around Congress for a long time, and this is the congressional panel, and you're the perfect person to ask this to. Members of Congress always feel like they have to go back home and say that they did something, which normally means instead of looking at old laws that they could rip off the books or regulations that are thorny and problematic, they're layering on top of existing law with a new law and new money and a new program. So they can go home to the electorate and say, this is what I did this year and the reason why I want you to bring me back in two years or in six years, depending upon which branch you're in or which House of Congress. How do we create incentives? Um, we can't always mold people into Rob Bishop. So how do we create incentives for members of Congress? <laughs> My to, staff is grateful for that. Yeah, that was a plug. Adam asked me to put it in. Um, but how do we create incentives and how does, how does I guess, is there a way the public would reward and how do we create incentives for members of Congress to actually do something along the lines of what you've discussed in terms of what we can do with states and providing them power, but also something along the lines of what Congresswoman McMorris-Rogers mentioned, like the USA Act, where you're actually going back and looking at these old laws on the books that just get layered and layered. What's the approach? How do we do it? You know, um, you are right, because I even remember in my legislative days, um, <laughs> There was one newspaper that used to do a survey of legislators that would say how many bills they passed versus how many they introduced. Idea that the more bills you passed, the better you were. So I always introduced the retirement bill because I was retirement chairman, and I asked them, can we divide that up into five bills instead of just one? Of course. Looked great on my report. Sure, yeah. But I still think there is out there within the public the idea that if you say, I don't pass lots of bills, I got rid of bills, 
I lowered the res results. You can still publicize that. But we don't do a lot in publicizing people that actually go out of their way to try and make things more efficient and, and more workable. Um, one of the things we talked about in the First Amendment Task Force, the idea of, of rulemaking authority, and uh, Kathy hit on it. The RAINS Act is great, but that's just a very beginning. There's a, there's a threshold that's huge on that. In most states, at least in my state, rules the agency promulgates have to go and be reviewed by a committee before they're implemented. The problem we have in Washington is that rules are implemented, and then we as a Congress try and go to attack them, which never happens. Get it backwards. Yes. And there is nothing, I'm sorry, there is nothing in law, although there's a lot of people that scares the crap out of them, of actually insisting that the agencies have to come to a committee of Congress to review a rule before it can be implemented, regardless of the amount of money that would be there. Now, if, if we actually did it on the full House, uh, we'd consume everything we're doing. But every House committee does have some oversight committee that should be part of their responsibility so that the agency has to at least express it to Congress and let Congress have some kind of approval or disapproval. And to me, that was one of the failures we did when we talked about the first Article I initiatives. We didn't actually empower us to take proactive positions. But how you actually sell that, I still think there's a way if you can go back to the constituents and say, I'm making your life better because I got rid of seven laws. I think people will actually buy that. I think they'd be excited about that. But we just don't have a mindset of looking at that. Folks? Would people be right. We're going to take some questions from the audience, but um, I've, I've just got to say that this, this concept of, of trying to figure out how to roll back, you remember biennial budgeting was a big issue. And I'm just wondering if something along those lines where you spend uh, an entire year, maybe even two years, maybe two years on and then one year actually doing the actual budget and appropriations, but using the oversight authority of Congress for a full year to look at every program that's a five-year reauthorization, a three-year reauthorization, whatever they might be, and really get into the nuts and bolts of those programs and determine, wait a second, is, is this really the federal role? Are we the ones that are supposed to be doing it? Wouldn't it be better if the laboratories of innovation, our states, our localities were working on that? I mean, is, does that have promise? It, it gets talked about a lot. It gets brought up. It's, it's taken off the shelf and dusted off about every three years and, re, and recirculated. But, but are those the kinds of things that we should be trying to focus on and talking about to help us? When I first came here, I didn't think so, because philosophically, you should be able to do that every year. It doesn't work that way. Correct. So what you're talking about now is what has actually been talked about in the past is doing biennial budgets so that you can spend one year just doing the, the 700 amendments to the NDAA that are made in order and you have to flog through them and you don't really care about any of them and they're going to be, they're never coming out of conference anyway. But do that the first year and then take your time to review what you're doing. We have started with that in starting to move forward on the military side of doing two-year budgeting processes. If we can get that foothold in place, then I think this is the time. And I do think there's an, at, an aptitude for do that. There's an attitude that that would be appropriate because simply what we're doing right now is not. And she also emphasized another thing. We are still reauthorizing and refunding programs. We are funding programs that have never been reauthorized in years. Right. If you did a biennial budget, okay, get it over with and then go back through the process again. There's a, there's a, there is an avenue for that actually happening. And because we 
fund these programs that are not authorized. We're putting a massive – you talk about federalism and, and Congress exerting its power over the states and localities. But then you can go one further and talk about the appropriators. And I have nothing against appropriators. But I if, do. I, I hear you. <laughs> but if, if they're the ones deciding every year what we're funding on programs that have not been authorized and some that have – now we're talking about truly even greater power in the hands of even fewer people. No, you're, I, I agree with you. This is an opportunity of maybe reinforcing the authorizing committees to do their jobs in a more meaningful way. And, and yeah, they're, appropriators are not evil people, but the process we have limits the amount of input people can have to it. You don't really know what are the bottom lines in that. And sometimes appropriators like that of opportunity that they can put things in a budget without really having a lot of scrutiny. If you were doing a biennial budget, let them do that. But in the second year, then you go after it. And I think that would help most people, more people in Congress become more involved. And maybe you could generate that attitude that being thoughtful in what we were doing can generate more positive publicity back home than actually accomplishing a new program. I think that's right. Let's take a couple questions from the audience. Hey, Peter, how are you? My name is Peter Ferrara. I worked in the White House Office of Policy Development for President Reagan. And by 19, he was, federalism was a big issue for him. And by 1996, Congress got around to doing, addressing what was the real, whole real reason why he first entered politics. So he was the, the governor of California that actually pursued welfare reform. And in 1996, they block granted uh, one federal welfare program back to the states. And it was enormously successful, actually. The states proved far more uh, uh, adept at getting people off of welfare and into work. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and after 10 years, the, the program was spending 50% less than it would have otherwise. And it was renamed Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, not Aid to Families with Dependent Children. And so, um, but, the, but that was just one federal welfare program. It was enormously successful. But there were a hundred more federal means-tested welfare programs. Actually, all of them should be block-granted back to the states in the same way that that one program was. The, we spent a trillion dollars a year on these federal welfare programs. All of that should be block-granted back to the states. If there is any, ever any hope of balancing the budget, this should be step one. So uh, I wanted to raise that as a question of, you know, uh, I'm going to be, you know, working on that issue more in the next few years and uh, uh, you know is there uh, any receptivity to taking up where we were in 1996 and applying that to all the federal welfare programs block random all back to the states um, you can't limit that just to welfare have you ever thought of what we could do with Medicaid and Medicare dollars if we allowed states to have greater flexibility well Medicaid is one of those programs so yeah. that block should be blocked random back to the states no, that's, it's a perfect example. The sad part about that is it took two, two decades to get there, and it was only on one program, but it worked. So if we tried to implement that, and there are still voices out there that are talking about those, those other kind of efforts. It, it has to be that way. No, it, it's the right thing to do. How about uh, down here? I have a question right down here. Uh, Michael Char with the Badger Institute. Um, one of the earlier panelists talked about the described federalism as a tug of war between the federal government and the state governments, but but also noted that some of the individuals uh, pulling the rope on the state side have been bought off by those on the federalism team. Um, we have now about seven hundred 
billion dollars every year in federal grants and aid that go out to states. How can governors and state legislators and so on resist politically or otherwise that free money that's flowing into their states? Uh, how, how can we how can we balance this? How can we get that tug of war, you know, rebalanced if that kind of money is flowing into uh, every program, including a, a streetcar in Milwaukee? Good luck. <laughs> now, Dick Armey used to say, if you want to get out of the trap, the first thing you have to do is let go of the cheese. And states bear a great burden of responsibility by accepting free money that we don't have. They are buying themselves into the process so that states have to do this. Um, Culberson used to have a whole bunch of amendments that I think we should look at again in which would require before a state enters into a federal program that the state legislature has to agree to it, has to have an affirmative vote and allow states to have a special standing so they could sue over some of these ent entities. We're going to have to empower states so that they have more responsibility in making those decisions because I'm sorry, I, I know it, I got it when I was in the When I was in the legislature, it was easy to put $10 into this program raising, realizing you only had to raise four of it yourself. You can get six free from the federal government. I get it. But we've got, to, we've got to change that mindset so that the states are taking more responsibility in the way they're looking at things. So giving them more power by block granting, letting states actually having to make a physical choice about that. And then the other thing is we have to, on this level, quit spending so much money that we don't have. We have to quit offering it, dangling it out there. But I get it. I know how that dynamic works. It's a problem. So maybe you have to have groups like the Heritage Foundation that keep emphasizing that and the education to allow people, I mean, people to realize we are doing things that are at least hypocritical. Okay. Let's do uh, another question down here. Augusta Salzona, uh, Filipino by birth, American by choice. My question is this, basically. Uh, um, why do you think uh, we lost... Uh, control of the House, and if you were a uh, one of the top leadership, uh, how do you, what would you, uh, how do you think we can regain control, of, back control of the House? I'm assuming by we, we mean Republicans? Yeah. Okay. Um, Like it's a, it's a convoluted reason of why we lost control, which comes with the fact it was in a midterm election and a whole lot of other issues that were very localized. So I've heard a lot of analysts say that there was, you know, one big, no, there are a whole bunch of reasons that were very localized in the first place. Um, what we have to do is once again refocus on what we are attempting to do and um, realize that there are principles and policies that we have to emphasize. We still win on policies. We still win on principle. When we start making it into personalities, then we have a tendency of either de devouring ourselves or simply losing focus of what it is. But the principles you guys are talking about, the principles of, of federalism, or however you uh, – give me a better word for it. The principles of giving people choices, people giving people freedom to make choices, those still resonate. And if we try and emphasize those, we can come back again. Let's do one last question, and then we're going to wrap up the symposium. Um, we'll go ahead and go down here, because your mic's close to him. Uh, thank you, um, and thanks for doing this, Congressman and, and uh, Rick. My name is Michael Maybach with the Center for the Electoral College, which is part of federalism, 
you know, there's an effort to have a compact of many states to have an end run on the Electoral College. Is the Congress looking at this? Do you have thoughts about that effort? I do not have any idea. I have not heard anyone in Congress actually legitimately talking about that or emphasizing that, and it's a dumb idea. And that's a good way to wrap that up. Can we thank the congressman, please? All right, folks, I just wanted to wrap up real quick before we let everyone go. We have box lunches uh, out in the lobby. But, look, I think the main takeaways um, from all the panels today, I think I'm supposed to go on these. Here we go. Um, the importance of education in federalism, we heard that from the first panel, uh, broader public education, focusing on our newly elected officials instead of uh, different academic institutions uh, uh, teaching them uh, what they should do or at least letting them know what they think they should know about the administrative state. Uh, there are other institutions, heritage and others among them, that might serve in a better role. Real and practical federalism under, under the president, his access to governors, to local leaders, his vision, uh, the leadership he's shown through his departments is expressed on the next panel. Mick Mulvaney talked a lot about federalism in action with regards to health care. Uh, he talked a lot about uh, how to devolve that power out of D.C. Uh, and into the states and locals. Uh, the council, countless examples were used on multiple panels, and I think wrapping up with our Congress Congresswoman and congressmen about their efforts, whether it's the USA Act, uh, some of the some of the uh, implementations that'll come out in a report, which I think the congressman may have mentioned, but the report from the Intergovernmental Affairs Committee is going to be coming out soon, talking about the 115th Congress's view on federalism and what can be done. Biennial budgeting, there's a myriad of different things. But we're going to have uh, more symposiums like this, more panels to discuss federalism, to try to put it into action. We appreciate your interest. I want to thank everybody that was involved uh, on every panel, and especially Jessica and Janine with the Heritage Foundation for their hard work, and our partnership with Doug Holscher and Nick Potabom in the White House to make this happen. Uh, thank you for your attention today, and thank you for coming. Appreciate it. <laughs>